VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, I'll... Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. It's Wednesday, August the 2nd. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's produced the program. Let's get it going. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue and on the air, 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, it's toll-free, long-distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 86 26, so good to be back, and obviously big thanks to Tim Powers for sitting in for me for a few days while I was away. And as you've heard repeatedly this morning from all media outlets, it's a go. At the Ultimate Townie event, the 2023 Royal St. John's Regatta is now in action. It's the 205th running of the prestigious Garden Party. Good luck to not only the rowers and their coxswains and supporters, but certainly the vendors along Poundside. It's one of their biggest days of the year. Hopefully a little dash of rain doesn't uh, dampen the spirits too much and the crowds will flow and spend a few shekels along the shores. But anyway, I'm going to chime in on the regatta. Let's go. And the whole concept of regatta roulette kind of reminds me of Tibbs Eve. Like, how long has this actually been a thing? I know forever today with a weather-dependent holiday, which is debatable in many corners as to whether or not that's the right approach to take. I think it's quirky and unique and kind of cool, but I think I might be in the minority on that one. But the whole tag of roulette, it's certainly a good PR campaign, an excellent bit of marketing for maybe the concerts that take place or people having their own backyard parties or what have you. But if you played roulette last night, you're in luck. Okay, a little bit of fooling around with my computer. Let's stick with the water for a second. Go over to the World Aquatic Championships in Japan. Quartet of medals already in the Paris swim pool. So Aurelia Rivard for the fir- pardon me, the third time as world champion in her discipline. That's at the Freestyle S10. And, of course, on the other side of the pool, and it's not over yet, I mean, Summer McIntosh is really a phenomenon. 16-year-old Canadian, made her Olympic debut at the age of 14. She's now just a couple of medals behind Penny Oleksiak, inevitably going to be one of the most decorated swimmers in the history of the country. At 16 years, she's got two more goals this go-around. It's not over yet for Summer McIntosh, but keep that name in mind as we fast-track towards Paris and the Olympic Games. She is really extraordinary. Quite something, to say the very least. And sticking with the pool, this American. But whenever you use the name Michael Phelps and the success that Phelps had in the pool, whether it be at the Worlds or the uh, Olympic Games, Katie Ledecky, 26 years of age, she now has won her 16th individual world title, breaking a tie with Michael Phelps for the most goals at the Worlds. Katie Ledecky, household name in the pool. All right, let's keep going. A little bit of baseball. As we move towards Baseball Day, which comes up Saturday here in the province, lots of tournaments right around the province celebrating the great sport of baseball. Congratulations to Jada Lee. Now, we've all heard the story where she became the first female to play on the boys' team at the Canada Summer Games. She's actually displayed in the Canada Baseball Hall of Fame, which is really cool stuff. She's now been named one of 20 participants to represent her country in the Senior World Championships coming up at Thunder Bay this month. So there's seven newcomers, including Jada Lee. It's been a whirlwind in the last few years for Jada, but she's now going to be able to play with the national team. At her age, we'll see what it means for how much action she gets, whether it be on the bump as a pitcher or somewhere else, because she plays in the outfield as well, and certainly can swing the bat. So congratulations, Jada Lee is on the big team. All right, just a notable day in baseball. It was on this date in 1921, after three hours of deliberation, a Chicago jury acquits eight Chicago White Sox accused in the Black Sox scandal. Of course, they were accused of rigging the 1919 World Series. 
it's a fascinating story. And, you know, one of the notable participants is Shoeless Joe Jackson. Forever in a day, uh, people who loved the White Sox and loved Joe Jackson were trying to petition for his reinstatement into the game. Eight that were accused have been banned for life, and that includes everything from the Hall of Fame onwards. And it all started on the uh, 18th of September, 1919, when Chuck Gandil met with Joe Sports Sullivan at a Boston hotel called Buckminster. They offered him $80,000 to throw the upcoming World Series against the Cincinnati Reds, $80,000. And, of course, one of the famous names uh, in response to it, the National Baseball Commission was dissolved and Judge Kennesaw Mount Landis appointed the first commissioner of baseball full control over the sport. All right, sticking back to the water, I suppose. And well, I don't know what you make of this one, but let's get into it anyway. So we all remember when there was allegations, whether it be with the optics problems and or ethics problems and or the creation of ethic, w ethical walls, whatever that means. And it was Premier Andrew Fury with then Senator George Fury, his father, taking a fishing trip up to a lodge called, uh, what's it called? Rifflin Hitch Lodge up in Labrador, of course, owned by John Risley. This was in the early days of the ending of the moratorium on wind projects in the province, and then the concept of wind, uh, hydrogen, ammonia. We're going to hear more on, on that, I would imagine, in the coming weeks about which companies are going to move ahead. And, of course, Mr. Risley's behind World Energy GH2. So when it was first reported on allnewfoundlandlabrador.com that the premier was indeed at Risley's Lodge, the conversation and the questions were immediate and fair. So it's whether or not there was any conversation with Risley about his project, whether or not there was any favoritism shown to Risley, someone who the Premier has known for years. Okay. So now it's gone for a preliminary investigation with the Commissioner of Legislative Standards, Anne Shane. She's come back with her report. All right. And basically said, when the evidence is viewed objectively, I find no basis for a finding of conflict of interest, a violation of the Code of Conduct, or applicable legislation. That's written by Ms. Chafe in her 11-page report. One of the questions asked by opposition members at the time was a simple one. Who paid for the trip? The premier refused to offer any receipts to uh, document how the trip was paid for because people thought, and I think rightfully so, if this was a gift from Risley, that's a problem. But apparently, through the investigation held by Ms. Chafe, and you can give it whatever veracity or merit that you choose, but she says now there's receipts been put forward that says it was a personal gift to the premier and George Fury, the Premier's father, from his wife. Okay, so I just want to look at a couple of things. Inside the world of politics, yes, you're still allowed to have friends. Yes, you're allowed to associate with friends. But there's got to be hypervigilance this day and age about how and where you socialize with these friends. So it's way out of reach for 99.9% .9 of us to be able to spend a day, an hour, let alone a f an entire fishing trip at the Rifflin Hitch Lodge. But that's where the problem creates itself, isn't it? So, yes, had the Premier said at the time, look, my wife gave me a gift. My father and I have enjoyed salmon fishing well before politics and will long after politics. But when the questions were unanswered and people thought, well, this is a problem. Would it have subsided the concerns and the critics and the questions had the Premier simply said, it was a gift from my wife. I will privately submit the receipts to the Commission of Legislative Standards and let's move on. Now, in this day and age, in the world of optics, just moving on is not really part of the conversation. So I don't know if that would have ended it there, but when we talk about optics, you know, is it even worth consideration 
that if you're the premier, maybe just maybe a fish and chip would be better served at someone else's lodge who's not in the uh, business of doing business with the government. So anyway, that's the commissioner's report on it. I don't know if you want to talk about it, but we're happy to do it. She goes on to say there was proactive steps to avoid all conflict. When there was an issue arose that potentially put the premier in a conflict, he recused himself. It was documented as a recusal. These are not my words. These are the words coming from the, uh, at the Commissioner for Legislative Standards. That does not end the conversation and the potential for the implementation of an integrity commissioner in the province. You know, for politicians, they will hear these questions and say, you know, everyone's out to get us. Everyone automatically thinks we're cheats. Everyone automatically thinks that everything we touch and smell and do and feel is dubious. But this is where it's in their best interest. If there was an integrity commissioner, then maybe some of the criticism or cynicism and justifiable questions can be satisfied when there's an integrity commissioner. Now, here's the rub. Who gets to determine who the, the privacy, or pardon me, the integrity commissioner would be? Because when the first bill out of the gate for the Liberal government was the Independent Appointments Commission, even though they're not obliged to take recommendation from the Appointments Commission and can point to whatever they like, maybe, and of course, there's got to be people out there who there would be consensus that this person is trustworthy, has proven himself or herself to be exactly that. Because if we can create that position, good for me and you as the voter, Good for me and you as the taxpayer, and I would suggest good for the politicians because there's the backstop. Every time there's reasonable issues to be questioned, we have someone we can go to. You know, people. Uh, that's not to take away any of the character of Anne Chafe. I have no reason to do so. But anyway, the next step is not going anywhere on this one, but it doesn't mean that conversation is over. What do you think? Okay, sticking with water. So a potential problem for some of the folks who are using some 40,000 private wells across the province, and that's the dangerous levels of arsenic. So there's been 1,100-plus test results. The department reported 112 wells with arsenic levels above 10 parts per billion. That's the limit coming from Health Canada. It comes with a myriad of problems, whether it be skin lesions, a bunch of different cancers, neurological problems. Even if you just use the possibility that 10% of the wells will indeed be seeing these levels of arsenic above the healthy level, so it's odorless, you can't taste it, and so maybe, just maybe, there's some 10% of the outstanding wells will indeed have dangerous levels of arsenic. Now, the government still has a few hundred tests to pass out for free, so it's obviously in everyone's best interest using a privately owned well to get that arsenic testing done before it's too late. And again, when we bring these topics up, it's not to try to scare the be-you-know-what out of you. It's just for the purpose of information. So if there's a free kit out there and the testing can be done, and you can identify whether or not your well water is within safe standards for arsenic in particular, that's probably a good idea. But that's a pretty whopping big number. 10% possibly will have these potentially dangerous levels of arsenic. All right, which is obviously a health concern leading us to this. Yesterday, was it yesterday? Yes, I believe yesterday. A report released by the Canadian Institute for Health Information. They are an independent organization. They do pretty solid work in compiling data for us to absorb or to digest and for government to try to create policies surrounding their findings. And this is looking at the first two and a half years of the pandemic. 
We know and we've heard about the pressures on the health care system. Maybe some of the moves made by various provinces, health authorities, public health officials, was possibly looking at worst-case scenario that maybe in certain provinces didn't present itself with hospitalizations, including this province. So here's some of the numbers in the big scheme of things. The team at the Canadian Institute for Health Information found out that somewhere in the neighborhood of 743,000 Fewer surgeries were performed in Canada during the first two and a half months of the pandemic. That's a drop of 13% compared to 2019. For us in this province, it's worse. The provinces average in between 13 and 18% fewer surgeries being performed. In this province, largest decrease in the country, 21%. Whether it be hip and joint replacements, and the province has tried to deal with the backlog of some 1,100 procedures, but even if you listen to surgeons, don't listen to me, listen to the surgeons, a letter that they wrote to the province said, Projections showing that completing 1,100 cases annually will still result in weightless growth to 4,500 people by the third quarter of 2029, basically because of the aging demographic and or the age of the people, average age of the people of the province. So those that many fewer procedures, it's not just for knees and hips. They're also talking about people presenting now with advanced cancer. Because when we went to basically a lot of virtual options, cancer screening was not what it once was. So this has created a huge problem, and the play catch-up here is going to be remarkable. They go on to say that about 1 in 10 Canadians do not have access to a primary health care provider. We all know that story. It's not the same, or pardon me, it's no different in any province in the country. The numbers of citizens of every province and territory varies, but it's in and around the very same percentage that are looking for a family doctor. In addition to that, so while whatever pandemic measures were put in place, there was the issue of burnout. So what has happened is even with fewer procedures, there was 18 million overtime hours worked between 2020 and 2021. Truly a startling number. So while fewer procedures were done, people presented more ill, more overtime was worked. So what do we have? We have a backlog that may be unmanageable for most, unless we change our tune and change our approach. We have healthcare professionals who are burnt out all at the same time. So it's kind of counterintuitive, isn't it? Less was done, but more time was worked. And consequently, we find ourselves in a really particularly precarious spot. So that's a big whopping report that I'm going to have to dig into a little bit closer this afternoon when I get a chance. But for the big high-level numbers, 13% uh, decrease in procedures from 2019 through the first two and a half years of the pandemic. And there's calls out there. And I think inevitably, you know, everyone wants a public inquiry on everything. And some of it, fair enough. You know, public inquiry to foreign interference in our elections, and not just 2019 and 2021, and not just China, but let's just open the door to all the bad actors. Same thing with an inquiry into pandemic measures. There was no textbook. Certainly glad I had no authority to make any decisions. But whether it be implications of long-term care, which thankfully we were able to avoid some of the tragic stories coming from other provinces, Ontario, Quebec comes to mind, and everything else to do with the pandemic. Will there actually be any formal look? I hate to use the word post-mortem, but will there be any type of inquiry into how we weathered it economically, public health measures, pressure on the healthcare system? Those calls are growing from inside the world of healthcare. If you want to take it on, let's do it. All right, I think there was probably some conversation while I was gone about drugs and crime. You know, 
So 11 overdoses at least in the last month, basically because of the presence of fentanyl. Now, people who are cocaine users, and look, just spare me, not enabling drug users. It's a problem. While we talk about drugs as criminal justice, investigations, arrests, and through the court system, incarceration has long been the key focus area on dealing with drugs. It has been. The quote-unquote war on drugs. The unfortunate reality is, after trillions of dollars, it hasn't worked. So now what we have is the most unsafe, dangerous supply of drugs on the streets that we've ever seen. And people are dropping like flies. So the RNC report that they've responded to tons of calls and used their, their naloxone kit. And we, of course, that blocks some of the opiate sensors and saves people's lives. So I, last time I talked about it before I went on holidays, I got emails saying, let them die. Too bad, made bad decisions. Well, we all make bad decisions on a variety of fronts. What we smoke, what we eat, the lack of exercise, but we just don't tell those people to drop dead. So this is a healthcare crisis. Now, what the right answer is, it certainly has to start with more conversation about harm reduction. Because even if you use some of the way that it's been approached in various columns and editorials in some of the major publications, like, for instance, a safe injection site, it doesn't just come with a clean needle. That can be the hub of harm reduction. That can be access to a counselor. That can be help trying to kick a dangerous habit. That can be a way to spare the healthcare system, a way to spare the criminal justice system, to deal with it like a healthcare issue, which it actually is. Yes, people who are trafficking in drugs and using fentanyl inside their cocaine supply, they're dangerous criminals that need to be dealt with and punished to the maximum extent of the law. But for regular users, it's much more a healthcare issue than it is a criminal justice issue. You could just say they made bad decisions. And of course, they absolutely did. But a bad decision that can see someone drop dead based on what some criminal has caught into their drug, whether it be in a death spiral, or spiral of addiction and or as a so-called recreational user, what we're seeing across the country is simply not good enough. So I get it. Most of the people listening to the show this morning said, we'll say, the drug use comes with consequences. And you're not wrong, but how we approach the conversation with said consequences and access to timely, adequate addiction treatment has been sorely lacking in the conversation. And, you know, extend that into the world of mental health and mental illness. So we should probably broaden the conversation a little bit. And I'm happy to take it on, even though I know most of you really do think that you make your bed, you lay in it. But making your bed and lying it should allow for you to wake up, not to lie down and never wake up again. You want to talk about that? Let's go. How are we doing on the phone there, David? Haven't popped up my call screen here yet. Very quickly, so we see NDP leader Jagmeet Singh has been in town. There seems to be a bit more amped up potential for a federal election. You want to talk about the major shakeup for the federal cabinet? Happy to take that on. That happened while I was away. And yes, the prime minister was on. It was an unfortunate day for me to be away. Would have liked to have been here for that, but so be it. If you want to talk about the online news bill, Bill C-18, you'll notice today going through your gram, your Instagram and Facebook, that Meta, owner of both large social media platforms, is blocking Canadian content. I've been told that there's no Canadian news online anymore, which is not true. You won't be able to see it on those platforms, but you can go to your favorite Canadian news me media outlet, bookmark it, and get your news there. It's a ham-fisted opportunity or a approach for the federal government to take to try to level the advertising dollar playing field not working not to say there might not be a better way to do things but the way they constructed bill c18 obviously hugely problematic you want to take it on you can do it We're on twitter 
We're on X. We're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. We're taking your emails. It's openline at VOCM.com. If you sent me an email while I was away and really want me to see it today, please resend it. Because I, of course, came back to hundreds upon hundreds of emails, which I'll try to sift through. But if you want to resend something for me today, let's do it. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, we're looking forward to speaking with you on a topic of your choosing. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number five and say good morning to Rob Hingston. He's the Visitor Experience Product Development Officer in Grossmore National Park. Good morning, Rob. You're on the air. Hello, Patty. Thanks Welcome for to, having us. Uh, happy to have you on the program. And, of course, this conversation is spurred by a caller we had early last week talking about accessibility to Western Brook Pond. She has an electric scooter uh, for mobility purposes, obviously, and she called ahead and was told, well, there's a wheelchair here. And we've also, well, many people would have seen the new access road, the three kilometers into Western Brook Pond. But, of course, with the narrow tires and whatnot, it was really not the solution she was looking for. Parks Canada, right on their homepage, talks about accessibility one, being one of the key issues. How is it one of the key issues, and yet she was left unable to get into Westerbrook Pond, given the chair available and given the roadway that you have to traverse? So, first of all, I'd like to say and send an apology to uh, Karen Hanley because that was a mistake on our part. And I'd also like to apologize if there was any other people that may have encountered the same situation. Um, accessibility is important to Parks Canada and Grossmore National Park. Unfortunately, in this case, uh, some of our staff um, had some wrong information and incorrectly advised her that she was required to use the mobility device that we offer. In fact, anyone with a disability going into Western Rapon is entitled to use their own personal mobility device. So I'd just like to correct that. Does that include anything that's powered electrically? Because she was told, regardless of what it would be, a golf cart or scooter or anything else, that nothing that's powered by electricity or a battery will be allowed. So you're saying that they can use their own personal mobility device? Yes, and it doesn't matter whether it's powered or self-propelled or, or pedal assist, powered assist. You know, um, you know, with regard to people with disabilities, they have the right to as Nancy Reed clearly pointed out, they have the right to use their own mobility devices to provide access, and we, we respect that. Our role in this situation is to help the visitor decide if their mobility device is the right one for our situation. In other words, will it work for them? Um, we also understand that mobility devices are not universal. Um, a lot of times they are specific to the person. They have specific needs. And so, again, they always have the right to use their mobility device. If their mobility device is not what the doctor ordered for going across that particular path, what do you have in place to help them? So what we have is called a, uh, it's called a hippocamp chair, and it is designed uh, to accommodate someone, but it does require, it's really not self-propelled. It does require someone to push them. Um, in many cases, we find a lot of our visitors are using that, mainly because the type of visitor that we're getting, they may not necessarily have their own mobility device. Um, and so they'll use hours and they're happy to use hours. In the case of, uh, in this situation, the, you know, the person has their own mobility device, and a lot of times in that case, it's best suited for them. And they're the ones that will know best what, what works for them. 
I wouldn't want to generalize, but let's just say, for instance, if I have my mother and her friends, and one of them has a mobility concern, and we will have a group of four visitors somewhere in their senior years, and a push of that particular chair in over the course of three kilometers would be an arduous task, to say the least. Given some of the concerns you've heard from Nancy Reed, concerns you've heard from Karen, and I would imagine many other visitors to Grossmore, is there plans to add to the accessibility roster, whether it be with simply electric golf cart, or something along those lines where a staffer can make it much easier than someone having to push a uh, wheelchair through less than inviting wheelchair territory or terrain? Yeah, so that's, that's a big question that we're trying to address, you know, and broadly with regard to accessibility uh, in general in the park. Um, one of the things that Parks Canada has begun to do is to start doing what we call an accessibility assessment and see what are the options and possibilities that we can have. A lot of our infrastructure was built in the past and we weren't looking at accessibility uh, in that light. So this is a step that uh, we're planning on taking. Uh, some of our national parks have already begun this process and we're planning to initiate ours this, uh, this year. And so this is where these questions will be looked at and, and addressed and solutions found. Currently, if I arrive at Western Brook Pond and I've been able to navigate through whatever means to get there, what's accessibility look like to go on the boat tour? Because that's really the majestic trip down that path is to get on the boat and make your way down through the fjord. What's the accessibility concerns there or have they been addressed? They haven't all been addressed. There's still uh, gaps that we have there. So to start with, there's, there's two elements to that experience. There's the, the trail in and then there's the boat tour itself, the boat that you have to get. So the trail now is has lower grades. It has a smoother, firmer surface. So it's more amenable to uh, a lot of accessibility devices. And once you get dockside, Again, accessibility standards have been um, incorporated into the design of that. So we have low threshold, barrier-free designs, essentially what's there. The boat itself, I'm not as familiar with all the accessibility um, availability there, but there are limitations. You know, for example, there are stairs. It's not barrier-free because it's a, you know, it is a boat. There was some. Uh, marine standards that they had to deal with so that like the washrooms i know are not accessible um, to 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 someone with a mobility disability when you look at accessibility you know until I sat in this chair, I wasn't really aware of all of the accessibility, mobility, disability issues, and the percentage of the population that would experience one or all. So we're talking maybe some in the neighborhood of 15, 20% of the population. So when you look at accessibility, how do you extend it to some of the other great offerings that you have? Not only Grossmore, but for national parks across the country. For instance, some of the interpretive programs, the interpretive tours, because now some of those require a bit of a hike. How do you extrapolate mobility and and disability issues to offer them the exact same experience, albeit nuanced or massage to reflect their disability? Yeah, another good question. And another one that we're going to be looking at in, in, in the future, in the near future. So some basic things that we can do, we can look at the sites that we are offering some of these programs and look at whether they are the most accessible sites you know that we're using we can use alternative um, 
some alternative communication means that may help, you know, people that might be hearing impaired. Uh, we could use transcripts, these sorts of things. Uh, we need to be looking at these different options. Like I say, we really haven't been in the past, and so we're really are being tasked now to put on, you know, with the passing of the Accessibility Act in 2019 to actually increase accessibility to the park. So, and we will be working on that in the in the for the next while. You know, it is a big task uh, that we'll be dealing with this. Uh, some of the things that we've done already, we have, you know, where we are rebuilding infrastructure, we are incorporating new accessibility standards to that. We've already upgraded one of our trails to be more wheelchair accessible, um, you know, so we can look at that as being possibly a venue. The other thing that we're looking at is looking at how we can have equivalent experiences. Um, if you think coming to Gross more and some of the you know, the big highlight items are Western Brook Pond, as you mentioned, but also the Tablelands is a highlight. So how can we make the uh, an experience on the Tablelands more accessible and more accommodating to a variety of uh, people with disabilities, whether it's sensory, physical, mental, um, developmental, those, those sorts of things. So it is a big task, and we're just beginning to start on that. I'm sure that'd be welcome news in the corners represented by the Nancy Reeds of the world and others. And I guess, you know, and good on Parks Canada for taking this different approach and this different lens to their offerings. And maybe there's a lesson to be learned for provincial park offerings or other hospitality offerings in the tourism sector about incorporating universal design beforehand. Because when you engineer it the right way first, it comes with a better experience for all, becomes less expensive in the end. And this is not me lecturing. This is bravo. Hopefully Parks Canada is taking this issue as seriously as it sounds they are uh, coming from your commentary this morning, Rob. Would you like to offer anything else? Certainly, in the look, I love Grossmore, and I think that the national parks are one of the real gems of the country. You want to tell us about anything else that's going on inside of the visitor experience world at Grossmore? Things you want people to know. Well, first of all, I'd like to say, you know, I totally agree with the sentiment that you have, and that's where we are trying to, to get to is, you know, we, in the past, we haven't necessarily thought of accessibility needs first and foremost or as part of the main, you know, as part of one of your main considerations. And that's mindset that we are changing. And as we go through this, um, you know, we... We'll we'll make mistakes, and we want to learn from those, and hopefully we'll learn from other people as well, and other other tourism operators. And I believe, um, you know, a lot of tourism operators are looking at this as well. So I think we'll see things improve in the future. But for example, I guess our biggest one that we're working on right now is we're in the process of reconstructing our visitor center, and. In that process, we have been looking at accessibility in a big way. It's been not our only concern, but we are doing it from essentially the start, incorporating the ideas of universal design. And hopefully that will achieve some very positive results when we open up next year. Uh, Good luck with the rest of the peak season, Rob. I really appreciate the candor and the time this morning. Thank you. Yeah, thank you very much for the opportunity. And, you know, we're we're working to make things better and you know hopefully we'll see some good results in the next little while and when there's updates available where you can let people know where improvements have been made i'm sure they'd be glad to hear to maybe make the opportunity to visit the park yes 
I hope so too. Thank you, Rob. You're welcome. Okay, bye-bye. Rob Hingston, Visitor Experience Product Development Officer in Grossmore National Park. Let's take a break. So it's one thing when I sit here, we talk about mental health concerns and addictions, what have you. It's for folks with lived experience that can really help paint a much clearer picture than I can. Keith Fitzpatrick is one such man. We've been exchanging some messages about addictions, uh, treatments for addictions in the province, the timeliness or the lack thereof. Keith Fitzpatrick, right after this, don't go away. Start your day off right. Get the latest updates on news, traffic, and weather conditions, plus interviews with today's newsmakers, your go-to source before you get on the go. 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays, your VOCM mornings. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number three. Good morning, Keith Fitzpatrick. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Welcome to the show, Keith. Thank you. First time calling in, but uh, I had to on this issue. Well, I'm really glad you did. And just to set the stage, you know, we try to cover the basis here, whether it be industry or politics and societal related matters. I can do the best I can to try to walk a mile in people's shoes. I can try to give the, you know, the overall view of one issue or another. But when it comes to lived experience, there's, there's no substitute like it. You're a man who's been brave enough to call this morning to talk about your own experience as an addict and access to addiction treatment. So we're where would you like to start? Um, well, where do you start, right? It's uh, Well, let's start with the addiction. It's a big story for all of us who suffer from addictions, and you said it in your preamble. I'm going to start with that because uh, the idea that, you know, let them die, you know, that it's a cho- they made that choice, uh, that's so far from the truth. There might be a choice that first time you pick up something if you're using something that's, you know, illegal. But you don't get that choice if you prescribe something from a doctor and you suffer from the disease of addiction. Uh, my story 20 years ago started with a prescription from a doctor. And then it blossomed in 20 years of my life being controlled by my desire to get high and forget the world. Uh, I used against my own will. I didn't have a choice in the matter. What does that mean? I would uh, say I'm not going to touch anything today. I'm not going to do anything today. And then I would end up doing it. Like, I physically needed it. I didn't want to suffer sickness. I didn't want to suffer the guilt. I didn't want to suffer feeling life. I I didn't want to live. And the truth of the matter is, uh, a lot of addicts are like that. You know, we don't have a choice in the matter. Uh, Dr. Hubbard said it yesterday, right? It's the the psychological need to use a substance that a lot of addicts are doing it against their own will. You you pick up, you use, and then you'll hate yourself for it. But yet the next day you're doing the same thing. You're waking up trying to figure out how do I get over this sickness? How can I get over uh, feeling the way I do? So you're looking for that drug, whether it's a prescription bottle or cocaine or heroin or fentanyl or whatever it is. You know, there's just, when you're lost to the disease, because it is a disease, it's not a moral failure. Uh, you got soccer moms who are addicts. You got kids who are addicts. You got doctors. You got police. You got lawyers. It's not just the guy sitting on the stairs in the corner of George Street or in the dark alley. It's literally everybody. It doesn't discriminate. It doesn't care if you're male, female, 12, or 80. You know, addiction is an equal opportunity attacker. Which is exactly why withdrawals are very real, With why delirium tremors are very real, because there's a physical addiction that needs to be yeah. fed or it needs to be treated. So walk us through 
the breaking point to when you said enough of this I need help and what happened then I'm going on three years ago now almost it just I can't we talk about a rock bottom you know you hit that rock bottom you get arrested or you have an overdose and you go get help I suffered cardiac failure seven years ago and I still use passive because the drugs controlled me but it just came to me I, I was going to die and I need help so I uh, called my father and, and asked to go to the hospital here up in Labrador City and from that point on I had to fight I had to fight because the idea that the healthcare system still has is, well, we'll put you in, we'll detox you for five to seven days, and you're fine, you can go home. Uh, five to seven days when you're 20 years on opiates and other drugs is not long enough for most of us. Uh, I had to literally email the premier, the health minister, my MHA, everybody in Lab Grenfell Health, everybody, all the opposition members, whoever I had to, and threaten self-harm to stay in a hospital because they were trying to kick me out. And I knew if I left that hospital, I was going to die because I was going to go back out and use. The disease still had control. I wasn't even fully detoxed. I had a fall arrest bracelet on saying I wasn't even allowed to walk by myself because I was in that sorry of a state when I finally decided to get help. You know, it's, 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 I was told by a supervisor at the hospital, we're not a mental health facility. We're an acute care facility. If you need longer-term help, go to the Waterford. Like, meanwhile, in the hospital when I was there, uh, most of the beds were mental health patients or people detoxing. You know, it's it's a serious problem when you're told, go away, you know, you're done. Like, there is no finish for additions. There's no cure. There's no, uh, and every single person is different. There, there's no clear solution for how long someone needs a detox or how long someone needs a rehab or if they're even going to get it the first time around. Or if they have any supports outside the confines of a hospital or a clinic or a rehab facility. And, and people dismiss it. And here's a classic example. Someone just wrote me and said, obviously drugs didn't control him. He got clean. That's, I think, the, the classic oversimplification, which is how the conversation is driven, I would think, in many corners of the country because, you know, because you got clean or because you got help didn't mean that the drugs didn't control you for upwards of two decades. So what does clean look like for you? And how are you able to maintain this concept of being clean? Because an addict, once an addict, always an addict. So what does clean yeah. look like for you? Uh, it requires work every day. You're still fighting. I, I'm almost three years off of all substances, and I still have moments that my head will tell me, you're fine, go out and, go out and pick something up and use it. You know, go out and uh, hunt it down. Go, go, go uh, ignore the world, right? And most addicts have those thoughts every now and then. Now I have uh, supports, but not through the official system. Like I'm in a 12-step program. I, I, I'm, you know, I have a sponsor, I have sponsees. I work with other addicts. I do all that work every day. And I have to fight every day to make sure I stay clean because uh, the disease is, is waiting for you. It's waiting for you to slip up. It's waiting for you to make that mistake. This is why so many addicts go back out. They get clean. They go to rehab. They, they get a little time clean, and then something trips them up, normally a trauma or another mental health condition because, as Dr. Hubbard said, you know, most addicts, 
start from trauma or they have underlying mental health issues that aren't treated, so we self-medicate. And I have ADHD, I have depression, I have anxiety, all those things that was not getting treated because I was self-medicating. They even diagnosed me bipolar when I wasn't because I had depression, but I had drug-induced mania. But I wasn't being honest with anybody because I was ashamed. I didn't want to ask for help. You know, the whole uh, stigma against addicts. You're getting in your emails now. It still exists. You know, it's it's a daily fight that an addict has to do to stay off of drugs. Uh, was I controlled for 20 years? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I did terrible things to my family around me. I was self-centered. I was egotistical. Uh, you know, I thought I was king, and meanwhile, like, my life was crumbling. I, I refer to it. My life was a dumpster fire of everything, right? It's it's the nature of addiction. You don't, you don't care. You only care about yourself and that next fix. You don't care about anything else. You poison everybody around you, including yourself. Of course. So message to those in authority. Is it expand more offerings for 30-day, 90-day programs? Is it more understanding and attention to the difference between detox and getting clean, ultimately? What do you think people need to understand, especially decision makers, not just the general public, because that's a tough message to crap. But for folks who are in charge of policy, what's your ultimate message, whether it be about expansion or detox services or length of time in a facility? What do you want to tell them? You're failing. You're killing people. Uh, we have one detox facility in this province in St. John's. The average detox time is five to seven days. Uh, that's not long enough for one. We have two rehab facilities in this province, one in Corner Brook and one in Harbor Grace, with three-week times and a fourth week if you need to detox when you're there. Wait times for those? Uh, when I got clean in 2020, it was 10 weeks. Apparently now it's four to six months to get into some of those. If you're at a hospital or a detox for a week to 10 days, and then you've got to wait four months for a rehab facility for, uh, for three weeks, time there to, to learn about yourself, deal with trauma, it's not enough. Like we, We've been talking about 11 possible deaths. There's a lot more than that that's died. I would think so. The supply has been tainted far longer than the, the warning that's come out. We've seen it up here in Labrador, people talking about using drugs, and it wasn't what they expected. We've got reports of people dying in Goose Bay of overdoses, but yet they're not on the news. Uh, you know, Ben's mom spoke out. You know, that poor young man spoke out about it, and now it's news. And the government still seems to think that we're doing okay. No, we're not. When you've got to wait months to get into a rehab, uh, it's not good enough. When, when you go to a detox facility, you're being shoved out, you know, five or six days in because, you know, more people need it. So you need the room free for someone else. That's not good enough either. And the fact that there's nothing in Labrador, like they, they quoted in Towards Recovery that there's six beds in Goose Bay. Originally, that was supposed to be a detox facility. Now it's a mental health facility, so it's not even focused on one thing. And it's still not open. You know, the, the, the government is completely failing. Towards Recovery was a massive failure for addictions. Yes, they added easier access to, uh, drug, to the uh, methadone and Suboxone. Uh, doesn't work for cocaine. <laughs> doesn't work for a cocaine addiction. Works if you're on opiates. Works if you're on heroin. Doesn't help for those drugs. Doesn't help for all the other kinds of drugs, right? It's, it's not enough. We are not doing enough, and people are dying because 
the government doesn't seem to care. It's not vote worthy to save a junkie. But as you rightfully pointed out, there's doctors, lawyers, engineers, nurses, media personalities, everyone that you can think of in every walk of life, there's someone who's addicted to something. Uh, Keith, I really appreciate you making time. Uh, anything else you'd like to offer this morning while we have you? Uh, the general population need to realize that in their day-to-day lives, they're probably interacting with an addict and they don't know it. It's not the, in quotes, skeet stealing from a car. It's not, you know, the, the guy that's passed out in the corner. It could be your kids. It could be your mom. It could be anybody. Uh, do yourself a favor. It'll save some lives. Get in a lockstone training. It should be a part of a basic first aid kit. You know, Red Cross, St. John's Ambulance have free courses. They take up to two hours and they mail you a nasal naloxone kit. You know, I hope I have one here. I hope it never gets used. I hope it never gets used on me. I hope it never gets used on anybody else around my house or in my parking lot or in my block or in my town. But I'd rather have it here than not have it, especially with the supply so toxic as it is. And our food, to keep it as part of your basic first aid kit now should be a naloxone kit. Carry it with you if you're out and about. Uh, regatta is going on right now. I hope people got naloxone kits there. Keith, I appreciate the time. Thanks for doing this. Thank you very much, Patty, and you have a great day. You too, pal. Stay in touch. All right, bye-bye. One thing, look, and if you're listening and you still, you know, just think that we go too far, we talk too much, too much empathy, your compassion is shown, it's not just the addict. How about their family? How about their friends? How about their job? How about if indeed the next way to get a fix is breaking into your home? That's where it's a societal issue. It's not just about the individual because it's much more complex than that. It has far-reaching tentacles beyond the individual who's addicted for all the aforementioned and many other areas. Let's take a break. When we come back, let's talk about sleep. I could use some. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number eight. Uh, Dr. Sheila Garland is a clinical psychologist and associate professor of psychology and oncology at Memorial University and joins us on line number eight. Dr. Garland, you're on the air. Hi. How are you doing, Patty? That's bad. Thanks. How about you? I am doing great. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. Before we get into a new app that you're launching, I think this will be something very common amongst listeners is catching up on sleep, whether it be for young parents or travelers or whatever the case may be. You know, you've been working on a project, then you go to catch up. And the go-to is, well, I'll nap this afternoon or I'll go to bed early and I'll sleep in late. But sometimes when we try the old catch-up plan, we just kind of make matters worse sometimes. I need to catch up. (laughs) What do I do? So big changes always backfire um, because what happens is our our body's used to making sort of um, small adaptive changes each day. So, you know, small changes in less sleep are followed by more sleep. More sleep is followed by less sleep. So your body's always trying to engage in like a homeostasis, sort of a balance. Um, When you knock things out of balance to a great degree, your body really has difficulty adjusting to that. So this is why sleeping in um, or napping can often backfire because it reduces the amount of sleep pressure you have or it reduces the amount of time you have to build that sleep pressure before falling asleep the following night. So people sleeping in on Sunday will often find that they just perpetuate the problem because they can't fall asleep at their regular time Sunday night. So then, you know, Monday morning, they're in the same situation. They're just tired again because they weren't able to sleep their full night's sleep on Sunday. 
So it's a bit tricky trying to catch up. Um, you almost have to, to a certain degree, um, bite the bullet and then just try and get back on your normal schedule as much as possible, maybe increasing it by a small amount, but not, you know, when we're talking about, you know, three or four hours. That's where the body really has, if you think about it, it's like changing um, time zones, like it's like flying to Alberta or BC, and we know how much that disrupts the body. Um, but we're doing that too when we try and sleep in or catch up. Um, that also is, is a huge disruption. And I'm just coming from the Eastern time zone, so it's not like it's Western or the Pacific time zone. So even just that interrupts me, but I'm pretty, I'm pretty easily interruptible when it comes to my sleep and sleep patterns. Okay. Yeah, a lot of people who work early mornings um, are like that. Yeah, I would think so. So, you know, I guess it's much akin to adjusting your schedule leading up to your children going back to school or to deal with the change on the clocks, the one hour spring forward or fall back, that type of stuff. Maybe incremental change can help you catch up as opposed to thinking I can catch up today. That's that's exactly right. Small changes are easier for our body to deal with, and that's like for anything, right? It's like small changes to our diet, small changes to our physical activity, right? We just don't want to go all out and be like, okay, I'm going to run a marathon tomorrow. No, even though I did run the uh, Tele 10 by simply staying home Saturday night. <laughs> That's a bit of an exaggeration. Okay, let's move off. One of your key academic focus areas is insomnia in cancer survivors. This may be a silly question, but I'll start with it. Why is it different inside the world of people diagnosed with cancer and or survivors of cancer? Is it simply the anxiety of the diagnosis and the treatment and the aftermath, or is there something different that happens to the body? That's a big part, but there is also the treatment effects that can just wreak havoc on people's emotional state, their physical state, and also their um, just regular patterns of, of life. So it, it falls into sort of three buckets. You identified a big one, which is the emotional consequences of cancer. So that's, you know, oftentimes what keeps people up at night, really thinking about what's going to happen, what's going to happen in the future, what's that going to be like. Um, but then there's also the other big one, which is the treatment, um, the side effects of the treatment, which can include a lot of pain, nausea, discomfort, even circadian disruption itself. Um, so that means just getting your kind of nights and days a little bit wonky because, you know, if you're on steroids in anticipation of going on chemotherapy, you know, that can promote insomnia. So that can be sort of medication-induced sleep disruption, which starts like that, but then eventually it ends up getting a life of its own. Uh, and then you also start sort of disrupting your daily routine. So if you're normally getting up at six or seven o'clock to go to work, but you're taking a leave off work to go through treatment and you're deciding, okay, I'm going to sleep in, you know, that can, and you're not going to go to the gym or you're not going to go visit your friends, you know, all of those anchors, which sort of um, give your body signal, this is time for it to be asleep and this is time for it to be awake. All of those can be disrupted. So those are the three sort of buckets that can come into it. There's also some um, research being done right now, even that tumors themselves um, can create disruption to circadian normality. Um, so, you know, that can be a, a possibility as well. And, and we've found that, you know, people even prior to being diagnosed with cancer will say, you know what, a few years prior to being diagnosed, my sleep got disrupted too, but, you know, I attributed it to 
whatever it might be. So that's where there's a lot of research going on right now is, you know, is there something like a precursor? Is there a signal, you know, that the body is trying to tell us um, that we're not able to identify at that point? So let's move on to the app, the I Can Sleep. Inside this world of insomnia, whether it be cancer survivors, people going through treatment, whatever the case may be, when we know we're all different, whether it be our age, the type of cancer, support systems, the type of treatment we're getting, the prognosis, how do you approach a study with a questionnaire to ensure the app can be all-encompassing because it's as broad as it is deep? Right. So the app is based on what I would do clinically face to face with patients. So it's really trying to recreate my mind in an app form. Um, And, uh, you know, this has been successful in the general public. So there are insomnia treatment apps based on the intervention um, cognitive behavior therapy for insomnia. But the key difference with this is um, I've been developing it in um, conjunction with people with lived experience. So it really is supposed to be tailored to the unique cancer experience and the impact that cancer has on sleep. So there is a degree of individual tailoring and there's also um, a very uh, appreciable feel of, you know, okay, this kind of gets me because there's a lot of patient stories that are embedded into the app of, you know, this is what this person went through. This is, you know, how this worked for them. This is the, these are the things that they had to do. Uh, so the intention of this is to make this intervention more accessible. You know, as a province, we have the highest proportion of people diagnosed um, with cancer across the country. Even though we have the smallest population, we have the highest proportion. So there's a lot of need out there. Um, this will be developed in Newfoundland, but it will be available um, to people across Canada. Um, so we're launching it in September. We're looking for people to contact us and sort of get on the, the wait list, sort of to get on the list to be able to be one of the first ones to test this out. Um, and then uh, we'll do further refinements on it once we've got the people um, initially in here to give us some feedback on it. Um, But it's really intended to... Uh, eliminate the problem of access. So this is sort of in line with your previous speaker. We just don't have enough psychologists out there to be able to give face-to-face intervention to everybody. So we're trying to solve that problem by coming up with technology solutions. But one of the other things that I think in combination with the previous speaker, we also need to be training more psychologists. So in my role, I'm also the director of clinical training for the doctor of psychology program at the university. And we enroll six people per year into the doctor of psychology program, which is a four-year program. We'd love to be able to increase the number of um, people we can train. We know that people who are trained here stay here. Um, That's the model that the medical school is using. Um, But we only train six students a year, and that's really because of capacity. Um, So, you know, that would be, you know, in addition to creating apps, which I love, which are great, which have their role, um, the other thing that we really need to be doing to address um, the needs of cancer survivors, but to address the mental health needs of the province in general is to train more psychologists. And with the absence of mentioning psychologists in the Towards Recovery document, which we've asked uh, Dr. Hubbard about and Dr. Lentz about, it speaks volumes as to what the government understands about the issue and the role that the various healthcare professionals play. So if people want to find out more about the published findings of these studies, you can go to drsheilagarland.com and there's ways there to connect with and be a participant in and some of the parameters associated with it. Final message to you, Dr. Garland, before we're off to the news break. 
Um, I think that, you know, in following up with the other person who, who was just speaking, um, it's really just to keep the conversation going and keep pressure on for saying, you know, these are resources that we need to invest in. 100%. Nice to have you on the show, Dr. Garland. Thanks for making time. Thanks, Patty. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Here we Bye. go. Dr. Sheila Garland is clinical psychologist, associate professor of psychology and oncology at Memorial University. Let's take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about Astrolab Days Festival, and then Pam has a follow-up with a call we had earlier in the month. Don't go away. Stay informed and have your say on the news of the day with your VOCM. Join Linda Swain weekday afternoons from 4 to 5 p.m. for an hour of talk and discussion with decision makers and listeners like you. News talk on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number four. Say good morning to the mayor of Channel Port of Basque. That's Brian Button. Good morning, Mayor Button. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Best kind. Thanks for asking. How about you? Oh, doing well. Thank you very much. Anyway, Patty, I want to give you a call to, today. I know we talk about a lot of times when I get the opportunity to call you with all the ongoings we've had this past year and stuff. Uh, but that's probably what led me into uh, wanting to call today to talk about a, a good news story, I guess. Uh, you know, we've been planning for a little while. We normally, this time of year, going into uh, August month, going into the long weekend uh, for the civic holiday, we usually do something called Astrolabe Days. Uh, this time around, we're doing a, an Astrolabe uh, Festival. Uh, we're doing a four-day event uh, from Friday up until Monday, and with a uh, with a whole lot of activities, which you can find on the Portabas uh, website and on the Portabas Facebook pages and stuff like that. You can find the full schedules. But one of the big things that we're doing uh, is on Saturday evening, we're having an outdoor free concert for the community and the region. Just a little something to have a, you know, a shout out to the community with all everybody's gone through in the region and stuff uh, to be able to, to do something uh, for them and to give back and just have a night of enjoyment. Which is pretty important because recovery from post-tropical storm Fiona is not just about rebuilding. You know, rebuilding communities not just bricks and mortar or two-by-fours and uh, roofing. It's more. It's much more than that. So how has the mood changed around the community since? Because even when we see weather forecasts that lead to a lot of rain in your area, I heard from people saying that, you know, just a weather forecast now kind of knocks them off their feet. Yeah, that's been one of the big things. You know, that's one of the big changes that we've seen. I've seen it personally myself. You know, one time you didn't, you know, you always uh, paid attention to the weather, but, you know, you always had that attitude of, you know, we've seen a lot of this type of weather in the past. But now it seems to be people get more, there's more tension, there's more stress when there's weather-related events coming, and people are, you know, uh, sort of on edge. So trying to do something this weekend where, you know, back in November when we had the benefit concert and uh, we had finished up the benefit concert, Chris Andrews and I and, and Mark, along uh, with Shani Ganook and that, we had had a conversation that, Chris's words to me at that time said, we're not done yet. You know, we should plan something back in your community back in the summer. Uh, so from that, uh, you know, we were able to sit down with a, a committee and, uh, you know, try to iron things out, talk to Chris and Shaniganook and stuff. And Shaniganook's going to be the headliner this weekend, of course. They're going to uh, be here and they're going to put on a great show for the community. As well, you know, we've got some local uh, talent back in the community coming home this weekend, like the likes of Randy Matthews and his band, along with Jeff Osmond joining in him. And we've got uh, Vanessa Newman. Uh, she's coming back with her band, uh, Merrymakers. They're going to be back, and they're going to be part of this Saturday night concert. So it's a, 
You know, it's a great event. It's free to everyone. It's, uh, you know, we're welcoming everyone to come out. There's both a wet and dry section. So, you know, we want people to come out, enjoy themselves, enjoy the evening. And, uh, you know, we've been able to put this off, uh, Patty, with uh, some great sponsorship with the likes of people like Mer- uh, Marine Atlantic, Mary Brown's Manador Mining. And, uh, you know, these people have come on board and uh, trying to help us out and, uh, you know, to 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 be able to do this, I guess, for the region and to be able to do it free so that people can come out and have a great evening for themselves. Now that we've uh, talked about this, which is extremely important stuff because a bit of good news goes a long way these days. Anything else you want to tell us about what's happening in the community or any of the rebuild stories or any uh, any additional information you'd like to share? You know, it's been a it's been a busy summer. Uh, you know, there's a lot of activity going on both uh, outside and inside. You know, we still have provincial officials that are still uh, dealing with uh, a lot of the aftermath, and uh, we're dealing with pieces of that in both our communities and neighboring communities as well. There are things going on. You know, we're uh, you know we're seeing some of the rebuilds happen. We've got some new homes that are going up in the subdivisions. There's expansions going on in the subdivision as well, of trying to get uh, lots ready for. You know, we do have um, you know as was announced there the high impact area that'll be you know in in the next uh, I suppose several months or so we'll we'll see all that starting to unfold. So you know we're getting ready for that. Uh, you know, there are lots of bits and pieces. There's been so much with this. We said in the beginning when it all happened that, you know, this is not going to take, uh, several, you know, several months to do. It's probably going to take a, a couple of years uh, to get through all of this. It, it was, a, you know, for a community our size, when you start talking about it and realistically looking at the numbers and the homes that you may have lost in the community, it's massive. And the amount of infrastructure that's been damaged, the amount of pieces that we have to pick up in that and, uh you know, we have consultants that are working to, to try to, you know, establish how do we rebuild in this area of certain things that we lost. We lost tourism pieces that we lost as well that were lost in the community, such as our boardwalks, our walking trails, and so on and so forth. So there was a massive loss right from homes, which was the most important, the residential piece, from our infrastructure right down to the recreational side of things. Yeah, it's all-encompassing. There's no question. Uh, Just as all-encompassing as the storm was for the southwest coast. Uh, Good luck with the festival, uh, Mayor Button. Uh, Final thoughts to you, sir, before we say goodbye. Well, we're just telling everybody, you know, to come on out. Uh, You know, like I said, uh, you know, Chris and the boys, uh, you know, this was something that they wanted to do back in the community. We we were able to work things out and to get it on the go. We want Mother Nature to cooperate with us, hopefully. It's a rain-or-shine event, but we want it to shine because it's, uh, it's a night for for our communities it's a night for to get out as well i should mention you know the discovery of the astrolabe back in uh, 1981 was done by a gentleman named wayne mushroom and wayne's going to be in town as well this coming weekend he's going to be here as well and he's going to be part of the festivities all weekend and it's great to have him uh, back home as well and uh, to be here to be recognized during the uh, annual event sounds great good to have you on the show mayor button thanks for time for the time all right. Thanks, Patty. Always a pleasure. My pleasure, sir. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Mayor Brian Button out of Channel Port of Basque. All right, let's try to get back on track with the breaks. Pam, you stay right there. You're next. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number five. Pam, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you today? Not too bad. Thanks. How are you doing? 
I'm doing all right. Um, yeah, I just wanted to check in and kind of update yourself and your listeners on uh, the status of my situation. Um, and, and just, again, just speak to the injustice and ask the public to, to reach out to, to, you know, your government members and, and ask for oversight and transparency in, in the processes of which I'm about to discuss. Okay. Um, yeah, so I, I, I guess it's been a while since I chatted with you. I've, you know, been the, the victim of, of some abuse of power with, within the RNC. Um, and, you know, it was, it was quite an organized event last year. My son was taken from me after following an event, um, you know, where his father had alleged violence. And it was later determined there was no violence that occurred. But, um, you know, CSFD has has you know, because of that event, they, they took up a supervision order against me uh, last August, and they didn't facilitate that. They wouldn't facilitate supervision um, until December when I had, you know, brought another application to the court, and, you know, they were told by a judge they kind of had to. And and going forward, it, it's been quite a tumultuous experience. You know, they say they want things, you know, from a parent, like psychological assessments. And I think I noted before, to you know, I've done over five or six to date for these people since my son was born, and... Um, He's very young, still extremely young, and nobody's ever found anything wrong with me. But, um, you know, as of late, he's, his emotional health has really deteriorated further. Um, you know, he's he's been in, in serious emotional trauma since, since the event. I mean, to have a primary parent removed from you completely uh, with a supervision order, you know, it's, it's very disturbing that something like that is allowed to happen legally um, through, you know, what is supposed to be the helping profession of social workers. Um, and the child was you know, denied mental health services at the hands of, of the social worker. And, and um, when I finally was able to, to get a referral in, um, the social worker and the, and the father later told the mental health professional that he didn't need it, which is very disturbing when it was obvious he did. And, and most recently, as his mental health, you know, at an extremely young age, at the under the age of five, mental health deteriorated significantly when it was otherwise perfect. Um, anyway, he, I tried to try again to get him a, a mental health professional um, through the central intake process. And I was told by the manager of central intake that the social worker uh, identified to them not to take a referral from me. And, um, you know, that's very disturbing, you know, uh, a, a person in the helping sciences, uh, you know, a social worker uh, single-handedly, you know, trying to circumvent that process when they're legally not allowed to do so. And, you know, my parental rights are still intact and, you know, the father's not communicating any, anything with me. I don't know anything about events. You know, it's it's really just, just uh, you know, deceit and trickery appears to be the order of the day. But most recently, when my child had a mental health breakdown, um, the social worker canceled my, my visits, um, even though, you know, I responded appropriately in these supervised visits. And, and, Patty, really disturbing when I turned around when he was disclosing abuse again to me, you know, at the hands of the other side, uh, the, the supervised access worker and the social worker had run out of the room. So they couldn't hear it. Um, just really disturbing. And the response to that is, you know, they canceled my visit. So it literally, they once again removed me completely from my son's room, from my, my son's life. And, and they're making up allegations that aren't true. And, you know, it doesn't matter that I can provide evidence to pro- prove I didn't say what they're saying I said. It, it really doesn't matter. So it brings me to the point, like, and I understand, I hear parents on your, your, your radio show talking often about, you know, injustices at the hands of these people who are are given the powers of the court to do things. Um, 
with no oversight. There's absolutely no oversight. So, you know, when I went to the association and told them, you know, they denied my son mental health, they said that's not true. And then when I was able to prove it was true, they're like, oh, we'll get him a, a psychologist now. And then when the psychologist was ready to do it, oh, we don't need you now. And and now, you know, here we are again, like, again, removed a primary parent from a child's life for no reason at all and continues to weaponize the term mental health issues completely in unable to articulate like what would be a mental health issue like rubbing a child's back while they're having a mental breakdown saying i want to go home with mommy you know or or stating that the father's still hurting them and then saying they didn't hear it i mean it is i'm being abused and harassed by you know uh, the lawyers for cssd and and cssd and uh, you know the the police took him out of iris kirby house and brought him back to the father like this collection of events is really uh, I don't know. It's it's disturbing. It's really disturbing. But sure. it, 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 Patty, the more the, the worse the father behaves, the more they attack me. And they literally make stuff up out of thin air. And I, ca- I cannot get a lawyer in this town to represent me. This guy is incredibly connected for, you know, politically and professionally. He's used those resources in the past. And when I cite that and when I reference it to, you know, the very serious bill 464, which made that a criminal, you know, event that would be corruption of justice. I'm looked at again as, oh, she's deteriorating mentally. Like, I don't think I sound mentally unwell because I'm citing law and crimes and, you know, trying to get my child's uh, mental health clinician for an event for, you know, for which was created by his government. And it's it's a complete cover up. It is it's disturbing and sickening. And I I cannot because I'm in RNC jurisdiction. I I can't get this investigated. I think the RCMP would investigate it, and I've spoken to them. But you know because I'm in the city of St. John's, there's nothing I can do about this. So I, again, like I ask people, you know, you may think this is individual and it's none of your business. It is your business. You, you know when injustices occur. You see stuff on the news like this is happening in your own backyard. The children are being abused at the hands of CSSD. You know, these stories are extremely difficult to navigate, not knowing any of the parties, exactly what's going on, what reports say. But the the one question I do have is when there is a mental health related matter, crisis or otherwise, why what has anyone said to you, I guess, regarding the the unnecessary intervention of a mental health professional. Like, what was ever been said to justify not bringing someone in to help a child who seemingly is in crisis or just needs some counseling or whatever the proper word is? Well, good question. I I sought my son's medical records and I pulled up a report from his medical file where uh, he had he had two scheduled assessments with what I tried to get him earlier in the year was a child psychologist and the child psychologist wrote uh, the child is said to have been doing better now that mom is no longer in his life. I never met this woman in my life. She didn't get my consent to see my son. She didn't see my son and when she found out I was attached and that I was you know inappropriately removed from his medical records at the hands of a social worker calling up Eastern Health. She was she was mortified and she she didn't know what to do. She really, you know, for her it was a first first experience, I think. And, you know, nothing against the health professional, but like, you know, to write stuff like that in a child's file about a parent that you don't even know. And there's no reason why you would deny service to a child. So when I reached out to the manager of intake, like, you know, you legally cannot refuse me a referral. I have legal, you know, um, you know, I'm a legal 
you know, parent to my child just because there's a supervision order. It doesn't terminate our parenting contract. I've had the same problem with the school. But, you know, you know, it wouldn't be appropriate to, to lash out at these individuals because they don't know any better. They don't know that a social worker legally cannot do that. They assume when a social worker calls them, you know, and I almost can't fault them for that because, you know, when a social worker calls you and says, listen, this, this woman's A, B, C, and D, none of it's founded. It's completely made up. I mean, these social workers had me arrested. Well, not arrested, but... I mean, they made up stuff, gave it to the police last year, if you remember, um, which resulted in the seizure of, of two registered firearms I had for recreational purposes that I didn't think anyone knew about. I mean, it is, it's really disturbing when, you know, a social worker can reach that far and can call a medical doctor and say, you know what, I don't think you need to see this person. You know, when my child disclosed uh, child abuse, the, the, the social worker sat in the courtroom and said, I, I didn't think that the referral for this specialist was necessary. And I, I think when a medical doctor, does, for whatever reason, does a referral, I don't think it's 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 commonplace for us to question it. And I think, you know, erring on the side of caution would be better than failing to do so. And all, like, all my son's medical visits were canceled. The father terminated his pediatrician, canceled that. And the only reason I was able to find that out was because I fought to get myself added back to his medical record. So, you know, the more I advocate and fight fight for my my child, the, the worse the conduct of, the, of CSSD gets towards me, gets to me. And most recently, I reached out to the child youth advocates. And, you know, I, I've been doing that all these years, but, like, I demanded they do something. I demanded they do something. And as a consequence of that, you know, I, I get a call today saying, oh, well, we think your mental health is deteriorating because you cited the Turner report. You know, to say something like that, I cited Bill 464. I, you know, a, a report came out from, I don't know if you remember Shirley Turner, but. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they, they keep saying, well, she's a woman. So, therefore, she must be like Shirley Turner, I guess. I don't know. But, you know. It, it's been brought to my attention that it's been referenced. So, you know, I, I looked at that report and I studied it. And basically, you know, the good thing that came from, from that report was that, you know, political and professional interference in a child custody matter is a criminal event. And I've said this before a, a time and time again, and it's, it's it's disturbing that, you know, reaching out to the child youth advocate has terminated my, my supervised access visits with my child because it's, I cited that report. Yeah, that shouldn't be grounds for any further action. It's just a actual, legitimate, documented report that we all have access to. Uh, oh, I, yeah. I, I wish the update was a little bit more positive on your side. I wish you luck and I appreciate your time. Anything else very quickly because I do have to go. Well, I just want to say, you know, they've had a year to do a mental health assessment on me, and they failed to do so, right? It's it's not about me. It's about it's about removing me from my child's life. It's an abuse of power. And, and I, I know it's hard for, for people to respond to this stuff where children are involved because you can't. But, you know, there, there has to be more transparency in not just Newfoundland and Canada, but like people people should not be able to get a lot, you know, get, get away with this stuff. Police and social workers should not single-handedly determine custody, taking it out of the hands of a judge and causing this much abuse to a child. It, it's, it's system should never be built this way. So I'm speaking to the MHAs. Social workers and, and police officers should never be able to determine custody. This, this is what's happened. I appreciate the time, Pam. You take good care. Thanks, Mike. Bye-bye. Uh, let's take a break. Brenda, you're right there to talk about the cod fishery right after this. Don't go away. Your voice in Newfoundland and Labrador's biggest conversation. If you want to know what's happening in your province, tune in to Open Line every day. Have your say weekday morning starting at 9 a.m. on Open Line with Patty Daly on your VOCM. Welcome back. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, Brenda. You're on the air. Good morning, and thank you for taking my call. Happy to do it. Uh, 
I'm calling about the cod fishery. It's been open since uh, July 23rd. Uh, we have called our plant, and they're not buying. I asked why. They said because there's too much crab and too much turbot, and the other thing he said was squid. And I said, okay. So I said, when do you think that we'll, we'll be able to go to work? And he said he didn't know. So that was fine. We got we tried to get a hold to the the plant manager from St. John's, and when we did finally speak to him, he said that uh, they were going to be in talks all week. That was last week. So still today, we still have no go when we can go or if we can't go. And here we are with our own enterprise. We got a license to to go fishing cod. And the season is open, and we can't sell cod to anybody because we can't get ice. So is your, so in the total allowable catch, what is it, 3,200 pounds a week? Uh, yeah, uh, 3,400, 30, is it? Well, 7,000, like, that's round weight. But as of July 31st, there's 2 million 492,600 pounds got. It's already caught. And we haven't been able to sell one pound. Are you restricted as to where you can sell? Like, do you have some sort of standing arrangement with one processor or another? Or are you able to steam somewhere else and, and sell your catch? Nobody won't buy it. Nobody's if buying If you don't sell crab to the company, they, they won't buy it from you. Okay. And, like, with with us, we had our issues with our crab. Now, 86% of that quota of crab is already caught as of July 31st. Now, the crab is, well, is almost all in. But still, we still can't go fishing. We still, both of us, myself and my husband, we still need to get our EI for the winter. We're still trying to, to make enough for that. and we And we're not allowed to go fishing. Yeah, I mean, some of this, uh, you know, people get mad when I say it, but I think it's quite obvious. Some of the problems are annual, right? I mean, just that's the way it has been. That's not a justification. That's just an observation. But this year, it's been further complicated. You know, when the boats were tied up for six weeks, inevitably we were going to find ourselves exactly in this spot. Well, that was the first thing one of the the members in in Old Perlican said to me. He said, well, you know, he said it's six six weeks late starting. And I said, I'm aware of that. But I said, that's not our fault. If it was open, we couldn't have went fishing because the weather was so bad. I mean, we had a terrible spring. And if we could have been fishing, we wouldn't have been able to go fishing. Not us, not the inshore people wouldn't be able to go because the weather was just not fit. Yeah, now in some places the weather will be, uh, you know, uh, too dangerous to get out in the water. But there's other parts of the province. Guys, for instance, who I know who are in the crab fishery, they just sat there with the boats gently bobbing up and down. They were absolutely able to get out there, but couldn't, of course, in the show of solidarity with the union tie-up, or I don't know if that's the right way to put it. But the fact that the boats remain tied up. And I guess that leads to the next part of the conversation is there's been a commitment for between the processors and the union and the government to try to fix this price setting issue. But unless they do, your problem today is going to be the same problem you experience next year if and when we see the exact same reaction, whether it be one side or the other doesn't want doesn't like the price or they won't buy or they won't fish. Yeah, I, I don't. 
it's got as bad now that I mean we've been fishing all our lives. My husband started in '77, and this year we are to the point of we're getting rid of our enterprise. We just can't take no more distress. Well, uh, of course, when you it's prime season and you can't get anyone to buy or catch, of course that comes with a level of stress. Are you able to catch up? Because I know inside the world of the tack for cod, there are monthly limits or weekly limits that are already put in place. Is there any opportunity for you to catch up if and when this inability to sell continues for X number of days or weeks? Well, well, yeah, because the the cod season, like you can fish up till oh god October maybe, weather permits, of course. But there's still not any income to us now. Our last income was July second, and we can't we can't fish. We can't like we if we could if we could get ice, our problem would be eliminated because we can wait aboard our boat like their monitor can come and wait aboard our boat Mm -hmm. and if we had ice we could bring it home and we could use it for personal use sure but no we can't even get ice like i i don't get it they're not helping us in any way everything we got this year we had to fight for and controlling the supply of ice has always struck me as bizarre <laughs> like, why should one side or the other, one entity, have control of ice, of all things? I know. And we had yesterday afternoon, this is what uh, made me call this morning, because yesterday afternoon we were putting away our lobster pots, and when we came home I seen a boat, like a, a bigger boat up there in, in the boat, we call it. And I said, geez, I said, who's that? And, and, well, we didn't know who it was, so we did find out after who it was and it's from the southern shore and they came down here and they pulled into the company and they put ice aboard their boat and they're going the, their story is that they're doing it with for um, personal use okay that's perfect like if that man can get ice and use his personal for personal use that's fine but why can't the rest of us get ice yeah, I mean we're with a different company. Well, yeah, we we sell to Quincy, and that was a different company. But if they're allowed to have ice, why can't the rest of their company uh, people get ice? I don't know. It's a fair question. I guess if you have a relationship with a company and or you buy their crab or sell the crab, your crab to them, or who knows how anybody gets uh, a relationship that gets them a leg up over their other the other fellow I mean, fish officers. A, I don't know. They're, they're from a different a different community. Sure. They're from a different bay, and and like I just I I can't figure it out. I can't get my finger on it at all and nobody won't answer the phones I've been trying for weeks to get one of the managers and do you think he'll answer that phone? No way it's not good enough boy I mean our lives are are, are hanging on a thread here got an enterprise and can't use it. It's just like telling the shop owner, well you, you can't sell nothing this week you got to wait till next week and you can only sell so much i mean it's the same thing 
it's our it's our business. Understood. And it's the same issues year over year, different levels of severity, but very, very similar. Uh, Brenda, appreciate the time. Keep us in the loop when things change and they start buying. Thank you very much. Appreciate the time. Yeah, thank you for your time. My pleasure. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. All right, let's keep going. Uh, line number three. Mary, you're on the air. Uh, hello, Patty. Hiya, Mary. Oh, not too bad. Uh, uh, all ba- all we baked me $500. I got mine last week. Yep. So I said, then I'll get in and say, uh, order some oil. So I ordered on 24th, so I'll get it before the oil went up. So I waited till Friday. The oil never came. Was actually going up that Wednesday, and then I phoned again Monday, and uh, I still never had my oils. So uh, the oil came yesterday, and the oil went up Monday night eight cents. That's right. So that's twice it went up while I was waiting on my oil. Yeah, and we all pay the price uh, on delivery. You that's don't right, pay the yeah. price when you order. That's true. Yep. That's right. So I guess my oil. I asked for five hundred dollars worth. Because when I got the $500, I put it in my oil tank every time. Mm-hmm. So when I got my bill, I paid uh, uh, $51 for carbon tax and $65 for HST. Mm-hmm. So out of my oil, $500 with oil, I got $383 with oil. There's a fair debate to be had about putting tax on a necessity of life, like furnace oil or stove oil, and then inside the world of carbon tax. And, of course, prior to being on the federal program, there was no carbon tax on fuel, uh, home heating fuels in this province. We were just paying it at the pump for uh, diesel and regular unleaded gasoline. But that, that's something we're going to have to figure out. Just wait till the winter hits. You know, it's one thing to be able to try to manage $383 worth of oil over the summer months. Quite a different set of circumstances when it starts to get cold and windy. You see, I tried to fill up my tank in the summertime, right? Yeah. For the winter. But are they allowed to charge that $51 plus the 65 They are allowed. doesn't make it right, but they are allowed. So they should send us out $700 <laughs> Fair enough, because the 500 didn't actually cover 500 bucks worth of oil. You're right. Oh, I got 390, 383 for the oil, and that's yeah. what I got. Totally understand it. I'm a, I burn oil too, so I see the bills the exact same thing. Yeah, my 500 bucks didn't get me 500 bucks worth of oil. Now, some companies, if you phones on a Monday and the oil went up on Wednesday, they don't charge it. Some oil companies don't. Is that right? Well, I don't know how they all operate individually, but I'm most familiar with the fact that I pay the price on the day of delivery. Whatever the price is that day, that's what I pay. Yeah, and she told me the truck got broke down. Well, I said, that's not my fault. That's absolutely true. Right? Yeah. So they should send out the oil every, every three months, then, according to that, eh? Yeah, and that program's just about run out now, I would think. You know, I think this is no one for this year. I, got, I, I received it within three weeks. Yeah, well, I mean, it's uh, the program runs for applications all the way to November this year. So, yeah, it, it's not done. But that's that one pot of money is running dry this November. So whether or not they have to do something like that again in the future. But, of course, a one-time payment of 500 bucks over the course of an entire calendar year, and in your case, didn't get even 400 bucks worth of oil. It's, look, I mean, I know the provinces, they've asked the government to drop carbon tax on home heating fuels. And that only started here on the 1st of July in this province, but it's going to be a huge problem come the winter. Absolutely. And I think, you know, even if we go back to some things we can't control, even just the application of HST on something like oil to heat your home, 
really does feel like an inappropriate application of that tax. You know, if we, for instance, go to the grocery store, and because we all need to eat, we don't pay tax unless they made me a sandwich or they prepared some type of food for me, I don't pay tax. Well, then how can that be justified for something that I absolutely need so I don't freeze to death in my own home? Stove oil or heating oil, if that's what I'd burn for creating heat and energy in my home. Mary, I, I appreciate you making time. Anything else you want to tell us about the 500 or anything else you want to talk about? Uh, no, what I was going to say, uh, if I go to the grocery store and pick up a roast, I look at it, I put it back. A lot of people do. Yeah. But then, then they can't do this with the oil. It's not nothing. I guess everyone got a page and I guess everything. That's it. Those taxes are applied no matter who you are or where you live. Yeah, I guess I got $164 from my carbon tax for another, another, I drive all that carbon tax bill used up. Yeah, I mean, people do get a rebate four times a year here in the province. You know, how much of that uh, covers your actual expenses? I guess it will probably add up a bit differently for most. So, I mean, it's helpful. We got ours, but it certainly is not going to pay to go very far for a quarter in my tank. That's where mine goes. Mine goes in the tank, right? Yeah, I guess my ours probably, well, it goes all in the bank account. I suppose we spend it on whatever we got to to pay the bills. Yeah, and I'm just living by myself. I'm senior citizen, right? And you're doing okay? Well, I guess I got to. I got to get more blankets on me. That's all. <laughs> I hear you. I look for an old man to come in and live with me and pay for me all, Bill. <laughs> Whatever it takes, Mary. <laughs> okay, my dear. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Mary. All the best. Okay. All right. Bye-bye. All right. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, we're going back to 1919. Then we're going to talk about the rental costs here in and around the city. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, John. You're on the air. Good morning. Uh, uh, my my call t- uh, seems rather trivial compared to some of the horror stories I've been hearing on your show the, this morning. And uh, uh, I guess you know, as I I don't know what to say. I mean, um, when, and yeah, I'm talking. I'm going to end up talking to you about something rather so trivial as a sport. Well, that's okay. And I mean, there's a reason why I pepper some of that stuff in off the top because. You know, there's lots of things to talk about. Some are good, some are bad, some are tragic, some are joyous. So just spreading it around, I think, is helpful for everybody, including me, and I would imagine the listeners, too. I suppose. I don't know. I live in my world. I don't know. Uh, I mean, we've all had tragedy in our lives and things, but, I mean, uh, uh, I still like this uh, in debating and talking about things that went on long before I was born Sure. sometimes afterwards. Well, what do you uh, want to talk about now? Baseball. Let's go. Because <laughs> I understand you have walked to Toronto to see a baseball. Not a real. Oh, Toronto. Uh, I'm a Yankees fan, so that probably would explain that. And But, um, yes, I, I know about the pe- I mostly was talking about getting, how people get into the Hall of Fame. And I know, of course, the, um, the Black Sox scandal, how they didn't, uh, none of them were. Uh, allowed him to be voted into the Hall of Fame at all. Yep. When my favorite player, Roger Maris, has never been, uh, I used to vote annually. They used to have a thing online how you could uh, vote annually to, to petition the Hall of to have Roger admit it. And in my eyes, he was the only legitimate, he holds, well, now that George has Item or whatever holds a legitimate record for hitting the correct number of home runs, uh, but uh, the, the 
I, I spoke to you once before, and I, after that, I came across a book at, at the value about it, about um, how what's his name do did the, the drugs bombs and um, how they dealt with him and everything. And he wasn't a nice person, <laughs> basically, but. Uh, that has nothing to do with, you know, hit, uh, hitting home runs and things. But uh, Well, I, I think the asterisk belongs to everybody, pretty much everybody after Maris. But the Roger Maris case is interesting because outside of 1961, he had a pretty average kind of career. One miraculous season does not a Hall of Fame yeah. career make, though. What do you think, John? Well, he, he, he was the MVP the season before. When uh, I remember, I watched it on, on YouTube the, the 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 last game of the 1960 World Series. That seems so long ago. When when the Pirates beat the the Yankees um, in the 1960 World Series. Uh, yeah, Maris won the MVP my, twice. Yeah. Yeah, and um, he won he wanted to see that season, and then he got, of course again when he hit 61 home runs. Um, but I mean, yeah, he just he, I mean, he was treated treated pretty terribly by uh, uh, a lot of the management and stuff, and uh, he lost uh, the desire to really want to play, and uh, he ended up getting traded to the Cardinals. And um, but I mean, yeah. Uh, uh, I know that his family, his sons and them, claimed that it, it shaved years off his life the way he, you know, like obviously he couldn't go anywhere. But I mean, I dare say that a lot of world famous athletes uh, couldn't go anywhere without getting recognized and one thing and being asked for autographs and one whatever. Uh, unfortunately, I never. I went, uh, when I was a child playing in in the little league. I actually had a Roger Maris baseball glove. I had a Reggie Jackson Rawlings. Reggie, oh, he was another. Yeah. Um, th- that was a different story. I went uh, when I when I first left university and went to work. I ended up working in Toronto, you know, my favorite city, and um, I uh, was working with a, a group of senior citizens and children and things who were at homes and we got to take them, the children down to a Yankees game and I said oh great this is going to be good and we went down and this was in 1978 now uh, so I'm, not, I'm not a young fella and um, we stood on the sidelines and got autographs and stuff and Reggie wouldn't sign autographs he'd, he'd shake hands but he wouldn't sign autographs because he knew they were worth something yeah, I mean, you, think, you think that's what it would be? Yeah, that's part of it, I think, because that was the beginning of how not just baseball cards, but the shows where the old pros would go, and all of a sudden they could charge 20 bucks for an autograph, and Jackson knew it, and he was a strange cat anyway, uh, although, you know, Mr. October for a reason. But in the world of Maris, just before I have to get to the news and stuff, and then maybe a quick comment on the Black Sox in 19. So for Maris, I don't remember all the stats. You probably know much more about it than I do, but he only played like, what, uh, 10 or 11 oh, yeah. years? Yes, he didn't. He didn't play very long. Yeah. I mean, he 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 wanted out uh, out of New York, and and uh, then he got traded to, like I said, to to the Cardinals, and they won two World Series. He he won for a number of World Series, um, but um, he you know he I guess he was pestered to death and one thing and another. But I mean, well, that's because he broke the Babe's record. I mean, and they love the Babe, yeah. right? I mean, I mean, I'm I met Rocket Richard a couple of times. 
and uh, he didn't seem to be like that. I mean, he, I mean, I sat down and had lunch with the market, and, and uh, he was just a normal person, right? And uh, but I mean, you know, uh, I don't know how some people adjust to that, and some people don't. Uh, uh, I I used to collect autographs. I don't see the value of them any, anymore, except I still ha- I have a John F. Kennedy pen. A, a pen? You, you see, yeah, you see how the president signed their document. Oh, yeah, and then they pass around the pens, yeah. They, well, I have a JFK one. Cool. From signing what? Do you remember? Uh, I don't know. Some uh, legal... I just had the, I just had the pen. I don't know what it was used for. <laughs> but, but, I mean, that's the way, you know, they did those things. They still do, I, I'd imagine, except I don't think anybody wants a Donald Trump pen. But, uh, uh, that's another story. No, no, that's but the, the this this guy with the with the the socks are, were I guess um, goes back to I guess when a time when uh, they didn't see you know how much the players actually made and we could talk about that for umpteen times. But I mean, Even I though they were acquitted in court, there's one story of a fellow named uh, Freddie McMullen. McMullen yeah. said to the other players, if you don't cut me in, I'm going to rat you out. So he that, knew it was out. True. And though, even though a jury acquitted all eight in 1921, the McMullen story still haunts all of them, including Shoeless Joe Jackson, who never went to any of the meetings, but he was swept yeah. up in it. I mean, and here's how the series started. The starting pitcher for the White Sox threw a strike on the very first pitch of the 19th series. The second pitch, he drilled Buddy in the back. The next, the next batter hit one right back to the pitcher, and he threw way over the shortstop's head out into center, and it was called a dubious play, the easy double play, and it went on and on and on from there. Comedy of errors, throwing errors, guys swinging that stuff over their head, and of course they thought that they threw it for 80000 bucks. I'll give you the last word, John, before I get off to the uh, news break. Go ahead, sir. Well, there was, uh, there was all kinds of events that went on like that. Uh, yeah. uh, I mean, it wasn't just... Dan, but I mean, uh, there's there's players who did things who, uh, you know, because they didn't, they didn't. I guess they recognized where a buck came from, and I guess they were all farm boys, like like Mantle and Maris, and recognized the value of a buck and uh, any way they could make a dollar after the season ended uh, is was a dollar made, and I know it was a different, era, a completely different era than the, even one that I can't imagine. I mean, I can't imagine. The 61 series anymore, but, but I watched it. But uh, 1919, ooh. Uh, yeah, know. I just remember reading about it. Of course, eight men out, and uh, you know about the Sox, and then you do the Maris, and that was Billy Crystal made the movie about Maris and that magic season. Oh, that was a beautiful. I loved that. Movie. I I really liked it as well. I can't remember the lead actor's name who played Maris, but he was terrific. Did you watch the the uh, the, the the if you watch it on TV? DVD, you see that there's a specials on there, and it shows uh, Billy Crystal is standing at home plate, and his his favorite player was Mantle, and he and he shows where Mantle almost hit the ball out of Yankee Stadium, the old Yankee Stadium. Yeah, well, everyone's favorite was the Mick, right? Of course, number seven. Uh, oh, John, yeah. I gotta go. They're making. They tell me I'm really late for the news, but I really appreciate the baseball chat. Stay in touch. Okay. Okay. Bye-bye. All the best. There you go. Bye-bye. The 1919 Black Sox. All right. Let's take a break. Don't go away. 
Join Craig Smith weeknights at 545 as he chats with local musicians about life, inspiration shows, and new music. Tune into Soundcheck, your backstage pass to the local music scene on your VOCM. Back to the program. Let's go to line number four. Richard, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Thanks morning for having me on. Happy to do it. I saw. I spoke to you last week about an issue was I was having as a low-income person, and uh, the landlord was evicting me. And to my knowledge, it was just to increase the rent. And I saw. I've taken my. I made an appeal at the Supreme Court of Newfoundland, Labrador, and they have granted me an injunction uh, to uh, stop the eviction. And we're going to have a hearing uh, in the middle of September. Interesting. So. Um, so what I'm trying to do is I'm representing the low-income people because I know that this is an issue that's affecting you know, hundreds of us. And uh, they all seem to have a common thread, which is uh, uh, there's a rule that allows the landlord to evict a tenant with three months' notice with no reason, right? And that was the rule that, that they're using to evict me. Now, I've lived in my apartment now for 18 years, and... Uh, a new landlord has, has bought the property, and within a couple of months, they gave me three months' notice. And um, so I'm fighting this issue now in the Supreme Court. And I know you were speaking earlier about uh, the uh, the increase in 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 the fuel, uh, and and how that's not a big deal in the summertime. But when it comes when it comes to the winter, that's going to be a big issue for a lot of people. This is going to turn into a big issue for a lot of people this coming winter uh, because the low-income people, they, they just don't have anywhere to go because uh, because of the rent increases. You know, they can't afford to rent an apartment. And so I've been speaking to some of the low-income people, and so I'll tell you uh, that uh, people on income support, they generally get about $1,100 a month. And I've been speaking to some people who are paying $1,000 a month for rent, which leaves them $100 a month to live on. And it's because they are just so afraid of becoming homeless in this province. And, you know, when you think in terms of income support, uh, Newfoundlanders and Labradorians, we have always been against homelessness in our province, you know, because of our harsh winter conditions. And uh, an income income support has been basically... They've just been paying rent, right, just to keep people off the streets. You go to income support, they give you enough money to pay rent on an apartment, and so they only give you, like, a very modest amount of money, you know, to to live on. And so right now there's a lot of people being uh, put into this hard situation. So I'm into the Supreme Court now, and so what I'm trying to do is... uh, what I'm seeing is uh, that there's a lack of representation for low-income people in our appeal system. So we know that rich organizations or rich people, they hire lawyers. Uh, if they don't like a decision from the Residential Tenants Association, they hire a lawyer, and the and lawyer goes down and fights. And when, when enough people fight against the same issue, we'll say, in the court system, then the courts... They kind of have no other choice but to to, to modify the rules to accommodate them, and uh, because the low-income people are are underrepresented, they really don't have much of a, a voice in terms of 
the Wesley Lynch and Tendencies Act and, 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 and how it's applied. Yeah, inside the world of civil proceedings, there is absolutely a gap between the haves and the have-nots. That's for sure, and it's been well established. You know, big companies, big government, they have the opportunity to, to wear you out and or just to exhaust your funds before the, it ever gets to an end result or resolution. One thing for uh, Stratter, Sir Richard, I'm really surprised you were able to get a quick turnaround in the courts for an injunction. Uh, I think you probably no, are too. As well, yep. And so uh, now, <laughs> unfortunately, uh, and so I've been involved in the in the appeal system now for several years, and I've identified another issue at the Supreme Court, which are which are fees, right? So I so I had to pay 140 dollars in fees, you know, uh, and so I question, you know, the validity of you know charging the low-income people, you know, these fees uh, when. Uh, According to the Supreme Court rules, 719, it says that a person on income support can apply for an exemption, right? You know, uh, and but uh, but the Supreme Court denied my application to waive the fees. Now, you know, thankfully, uh, as I told you earlier, I have uh, the diploma of applied arts for accounting, so I do have some money in the bank. But uh, I know that a lot of uh, a lot of other low-income people, they really don't, you know, have $140. So why, so I have made an application now to the appeals court of Newfoundland and Labrador because I'm fighting that issue in, in terms of the fees and that uh, the Supreme Court can use its discretion as to whether or not they will grant a fee waiver. And so I'm fighting to just remove their discretion from it. And so, uh, so if a low-income person wants to fight a decision from the Resident Attendance Association, uh, like I believe, you know, due to the lack of representation, that, you know, uh, there should be no barriers there, you know, uh, uh, for the low-income people to, uh, to plead their cases. Richard, keep me in the loop as to how it works out with the fact that you're now going to have a hearing, which I think is encouraging. And, you know, the whole concept of, you know, increase uh, Bank of Canada benchmark interest rates and landlords and renters and vacancy rates. I do think now there's there's no real simple solution to any of this stuff. But I think there is a conversation to be had about what rent control looks like and vacancy control looks like, how it can be applied, how it can understand the increased input costs for landlords and affordability issues for renters. I know it's not a simple one, but like many things that are worth evaluating and worth discussing or debating, none of them are simple. But shrugging our shoulders and just saying, oh, that's it, bye. Well, that can't be the way we operate. So keep me in the loop of how this proceeds, Richard. Okay, thanks so much for your time. Appreciate yours. Bye, buddy. Take good care. Bye-bye. That's a good one. Will I get the hike in before we go to the break, Dave? Let's go to line number one. Good morning, Patrick Collins. You're on the air. Good morning. How are you doing? Best kind, you? Oh, good. Thank you. Right. Um, As you know, Patty, I'm with the uh, Cassifi Bay Museum on Sears Board there. Yep. And we're having our uh, summertime haunted hike coming up now, heritage hike, coming up on Saturday night at 9 o'clock, leaving from St. Paul's, historic St. Paul's Church. And I wanted to call in and let people know that we're we're on the go. And uh, if you want to be scared, uh, it's not for the faint of heart, but we have some of our most historic people that are from the past, uh, the likes of Thomas Ridley and uh, uh, Peter Downing, murderers and... Uh, heroes and politicians that come back to life and come out of their houses and, and so on that kind of spook people, but here's a little bit of information about the town and uh, and our great town here, you know? I want to let you know that. 
uh, don't let the scaredy cat out of the bag in full, but wet my whistle. You know, you mentioned Thomas Ridley. What are people going to experience? Give us one thing where you might get a chance to get this, the you-know-what scared out of you. Yeah, well, you know, we had a situation here where um, we had this, you know, uh, the famous uh, triple murder where Peter Downing and Patty Malone conspired to murder Robert uh, Crocker Bray. Right. And he's a little boy and uh, he's and his uh, servant girl. And, uh, well, you know, uh, Peter Downing, uh, he was a bit of a shyster and so was Patty Malone, but they show up. And uh, you better be careful up around St. Paul's Church as you move up to the back of the church that night. We go up some laneways that are pretty dark and, you know, uh, don't worry, though, we have security on there and so on. But um, every now and then, some will pop out and there will be a situation where... Uh, you might want to just sit and guess and say to yourself, now, why do they show up here? At the same time, though, Pat, I think you'll learn a bit about our town and this, and some of the more historic characters, you know? I yeah. think it's great, and I know the work, and I know the story of Peter Downing. I know that he he eventually was hung for his role in the, yeah. in the murder of Robert Crocker Bray. Yeah, he was gibbeted. Uh, he was hung in Portsmouth Cove, and he was hung, sorry, in, in St. John's. At, yeah, Market House at, Hill. That's right, and then bought out by both from the from Portsmouth Cove to Harbour Grace, where he's hung on Gibbet Hill there. Um, and the people here in Harbour Grace were poisoned with having seen a body there hung up for almost four months, and they went in and cut him down and dragged him out to uh, Magistrate Sterling's, Dr. Sterling's house, and dumped him, dumped the contents to whatever was left of poor old Peter. And he's buried now, by the way, in the uh, courthouse, the old courthouse up on in Harbour Grace, the one that just opened there. Uh, the old, it's uh, he's buried there. We don't know exactly where on uh, where he is, but uh, he's buried there in 1833. So uh, uh, people should be very careful where they walk. Absolutely, <laughs> and be careful as you traipse around Gibbet Hill. If you want to know more about that story, read it in Pat Collins' book. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Peter. Uh, Pat, uh, I appreciate that. No problem, Patrick. Listen, give the folks the details of the where the when one more time for the Harbor Grace Museum haunted hike. Yes, it starts from uh, St. Paul's. The historic St. Paul's Church this year is $10 per person. You can buy your tickets on the door. And all are welcome. If you bring children, please be aware that there's some adult uh, content in the sense, but, you know, scary content, graphic in the sense. So uh, just heads up on that. It sounds like it should be a, a fun time, albeit with a little dose of fear dolloped in. Good to have you on, Patrick. Stay in touch. Thank you, sir. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, there you go. When we come back, we'll talk a little criminal justice. And Karen wants to pick up where Parks kind of left off, talking about accessibility issues. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Say good morning to Helen Cottonway Ottenheimer. She's the PC member for Harbor, Maine, also the critic for Justice of Public Safety. Good morning, Helen. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Best kind today. Thank you. How about you? I'm fine as well. Thank you. Great. Patty, I'm calling in uh, because of my concerns about, for example, the crime rate that we see in our province and specifically the drug problem issue that uh, is definitely evident uh, in our communities and uh, the dangerous supply of drugs that we see and what it is we need to do um, to, to cam- combat uh, this, this uh, issue. Well, what is it? Because I think that's the million-dollar question right across the country. The unfortunate reality that we find ourselves dealing with is that we have changed the conversation from policy to politics. And when we talk about societal ills, if it's all about your political ideology, we're pretty much guaranteeing ourselves we make no forward steps forward. Make no steps forward. Yes, 
Now, one thing I must say, you know, when you spoke earlier about this, you said we need to broaden the conversation. I agree 100 percent. This isn't a place for politics, but this is a place where we need to look at a whole-of-government approach. We need to because it's a, it's a multifaceted issue. Um, we know that all levels of government need to be involved, federal, provincial, municipal. We need to see within government all departments, and that has to be the starting point uh, if we're going to address the mental health and addiction challenges that we see in our society as well. I'd like to start with the Department of Justice. I do believe that uh, it is important at that level. It has to start with the the, uh, Minister of Justice right from the top. We need to set policing priorities. Uh, I hear that. I have many conversations with people within the, the justice system and who are experience, experiencing, lived, have lived experiences, for example, with, with addictions. But we need to see policing priorities that are set by the government. They guide policy. They guide Government policy will guide the direction of the police. Now, I know that we've seen some initiatives lately. For example, yesterday it was in the media about some of the uh, sweeps and and the police operations that have, um, you know, arrest, made arrest with respect to drugs um, and the drug trafficking problem. But I think that we need to see more resources, dedicated resources, go to um, fighting the issue of drugs, resources targeted to drugs. Because I do know that when I hear the minister, for example, the minister of health yesterday said, we can't control the sale of street drugs. I find that very, uh, concerning statement. It's not something that we should be throwing up our hands in the air and saying we can't do anything about it. We have to be aggressive with respect to this. We mm-hmm. know that there's an illicit flow of, of uh, a flow of illicit drugs coming into our province. I think with more targeted, dedicated resources uh, to combat that, to monitor that, to uh, focus on um, these criminal networks that are coming in or that are from outside the province bringing in, sending in these drugs into our communities, that has to be addressed. And one example I think that would would help combat that, we saw in the past there was a joint unit of the RCMP and the RNC. They targeted drugs. They targeted uh, sophisticated, um, you know, organized crime uh, um, units or whatever, organized crime um, activities. I think that that is an important um, unit, for example, that should be looked at again to to address that issue. So that's one piece, though, of the problem. Problem. It's it's the justice. Was that joint task force West Coast Pacific, though, if I remember correctly? I think it was. Yeah. Uh, I think that it was out in the West Coast and, and central Newfoundland. But again, that is something that we need to look at. We need to look at focusing not just on street level crime and street level dealers, um, but we need to expand to um, you know initiatives like that. But, you know, again, that is one piece of the the very complicated puzzle that we're talking about when we look at uh, the problem of drugs in our our society, in our communities, in our cities, and in our towns. 
but we also need to look at other departments and you've referenced this like i mean we've we've heard from um you know different organizations that are and community groups that are you know totally committed to you know addressing the problem of of um you know drugs in our society when we look at different departments we need to see the department of health for example um look at more focus on uh accessing long term accessing to mental health care and supports you know when we see the wait list for psychiatrists and psychologists you know that are years long so we need to see departments such as the department of health really focusing on this and you know we've heard from um, people like Keith who called in earlier this morning and I mean that is excellent when we're hearing from people who have the courage to come forward and your program encourages them to do that these are people who have lived experience we need to really listen and learn from from people like Keith who are um, you know who are in a very good position to um, you know educate us and advise us on how to um, really deal with this problem no question you know I really get taken to task when I talk about it as a healthcare issue versus solely as a criminal justice issue. It is a justice issue and a criminal issue when we talk about the traffickers and organized crime. Of course it is. But for end users, it's very much a healthcare issue. Because if it was simply criminal justice, then the war on, dr- war on drugs would have worked. But unfortunately, it did not. So we need to rejig the conversation. Just for clarity's sake, because I know where you're going, Helen, but. When we talk about political intervention, are you simply talking about dedicated resources so that the law enforcement agencies can figure it out? Because what we really don't need and want is for politics to drive how law enforcement conducts itself, whether it be investigative process, whether it be the establishment and the manpower or human resources, pardon me, associated with one task for another, because it's resources given to them so they can do their job. That's what you mean, I assume, is it, Helen? Yes. I mean, we know, and I I mean, the Minister of Justice will obviously say this. They don't get involved in the operations of Of police. Of course not. Rightfully so. What I'm suggesting, though, is police are guided by government policy. And when we see from the top up them, the government saying that, look, this is a priority. We need to focus. There needs to be that targeted resources towards, um, you know, towards drugs and towards fighting and combating because we see the, the dangers. We see what's happening. When we see the deaths, um, you know, in, the, in our uh, communities, we need to look at uh, ways to protect our population. And, I mean, it really, really, it is a very important piece uh, with respect to the Department of Justice. They have a very important role to play. But, again, it, it is completely a whole-of-government approach. And we need all levels of government, as I indicated earlier, mm-hmm. federal, provincial, municipal. And we can't get into these jurisdictional um, back and forths. When we see, for example, the mayor of St. John's, who had said that the initiative must be headed by provincial government when it comes to safe injection sites, you know, that the city doesn't have the resources. So we need to see that cooperation and collaboration between the different levels of government. And if we don't have that, then, you know, we're, we're really, um, you know, have, have even more barriers to, to getting to, the, to um, preventing, for example, drug overdose deaths in, uh, in Newfoundland, Labrador. 
again, it really is one of those conversations that we just need to drive it by. It, it's a policy issue. It's not a political issue. And I don't care if you're a municipal leader, provincial member of the House of Assembly sitting as an independent or an NDP conservative or a liberal and or the federal parties. It's a national crisis. Mm-hmm. I mean, we can talk about food and housing and all the other absolute crisis and health care crisis that are right in front of us. But opioids and the fentanyl and the overdoses and the synthetic drugs which are turning people into absolute zombies which then of course i almost said pollute but then they populate our neighborhoods which brings forward issues regarding services and supports and housing and mental health and it, i mean it's just all encompassing it's not just the person who's suffering the addiction it's yeah. everyone around them and yeah. it's everyone in their community so again this is not about you know being a bleeding heart to deal with drug issues the drug issues are here it doesn't matter if we've had conservatives or republicans or democrats or liberals at the helm the drug conversation has never changed it yeah. never has. We can talk about getting our, our dose of uh, f- our pound of flesh and lock them up and throw away the key. Every time we do that, someone else comes behind them. The problem has never changed. So until we talk about policy, not politics, it's only going to get worse. And if and people it's, think it's, it's bad now, just you wait until we see if we feel like Water Street or Livingstone Street becomes East Hastings. Well, I think, you know, it's it's getting worse, though, and that's the concern, right? And, you know, I think, though, it, it's about policy, certainly not politics. It is about policy, but it's also about working together. Sure. It's about different levels of government all, you know, being being on the same page. But we do need to see more emphasis on helping people through their challenges. With You know, we need to work at preventing these drug overdose deaths. There's no question about it. And we must ensure when people ask for help for their addiction issue that the help is there for them. But we also need to look at the source. Where's the you know the illicit the flow of illicit drugs coming into our our province? I I don't think that it's it helps any of us if we just throw up our hands, say there's nothing we can do about it. And that's where the police come in. And I think that's where um, you know we need to we need to support our police because um, you know we need to um, address the source as well. A hundred percent, and maybe adjustments to the criminal code to deal with fentanyl and carfentanil, which is a not brand new feature, but an all too common feature of the street drugs, I'll say. And anyway, there is such a massive conversation, Helen, but I'm glad you called on it this morning. I appreciate the time. Okay. Thank you very much, Patty. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. Helen Conway Ottenheimer is the PC member for Harbor, Maine. All right, let's take a break for the news. When we come back, Karen, you're next to talk about Parks Canada. Don't go away. Get lost in the music of legendary artists like Elton John, The Beatles, and more. Join Claudette Barnes every Sunday from 12 to 1 p.m. and relive fond memories through the power of music with Sunday Melodies on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number three. Good morning, Karen. You're on the air. Hi, Patty. How are you? Best kind. How you doing? I'm good. Um, so... To follow up with Rob's phone call this morning from National Park, I would just want to say kudos to the staff at the National Park in Grossmorn. Um, they've done an outstanding job in bringing this issue with accessibility forward. Um, so to go back to Ju- July 24th when I couldn't access the Western Boat Tour, um, you know, we had I had some conversation with you, and then followed up with Nancy Reed from COD, and um, then um, I had a very lengthy conversation on Monday past with the superintendent of the park, uh, Jeff Hancock, and um, we 
we discussed in length what happened, and it, it comes down to the fact that, um, you know, the information that I was given wasn't correct. I was actually allowed to use my mobility scooter, and because the information wasn't correct, I left that back at Terranova. I should have just taken it with me and begged forgiveness afterwards, <laughs> you know, but I followed the rules and done what I was told, so it made my experience um, not very good. But in saying all of that, um, they've come together to help resolve this issue and, uh, um, you know, they vow to do better. They realize now that the chair that they had put in place is not conducive to all people, so which doesn't make it inclusive to anybody with disabilities, probably just a small minority of people with disability. So I have agreed uh, with Jeff that I will have work with them uh, to find better ways to do things. Um, and of course, one of those things is coming from a person with disability to be able to um, discuss probably what's needed and different things that can be put in place. Like you can have all the strategy you want, but if you don't actually talk to somebody that has the lived experience, it, it's really hard to get something done. So this is where we are right now, and I'm really pleased that Parks Canada has stepped up and made the contact with me and, of course, with your show to allow people to know that they're working on this. And I hope it won't take a very long time. Uh, go ahead. No, it's... Look, like most things, it's complex. And when we're talking about Parks Canada as an organization with all the parks across the country, they would all have different features and different accessibility needs that may or may not have been addressed. What I found refreshing is right off the bat, the first thing Rob did was apologize. Because yep. if inaccurate information is guiding, whether it be the staff on the ground or on the phone, then that's never helpful. So then he clarified, which is also helpful. And then to move off to saying, we can do better. I mean, I think there's a lesson to be learned for whether it be national or provincial organizations, politicians, businesses, when you come up short, acknowledge it. Because now it has taken away the hammer from everyone that says Parks Canada doesn't care. Because if you listen to Rob, they obviously do. And they're trying to fix it. So it's really refreshing when someone acknowledges the shortcomings and tries to address them head on. Because when you tap dance and tiptoe and sidestep and deflect, then of course the public sentiment just grows more and more angry. So I thought he did exactly how I would have suggested someone do it, representing Parks Canada this morning. I was extremely pleased that, you know, his call this morning was as it was. Uh, I was also pleased that Jeff Hancock took it among himself to call me um, and have that conversation in great detail about everything that happened. And he also apologized. And he did tell me that it was a communication problem. His staff all should have been on the same page. And he said they were very aware that they weren't and they were correcting that as they, as they moved through this. I think... It started off, I, I, I could have been really, really irritated when I called, but I took some time from the experience and gave myself a few days, you know, 24 hours before I called you because I wanted to take the emotion out of it. And like I said to Jeff, this 
could have been a really emotional thing, but I decided I could do better and help other people do better and allow for people with disabilities to have a better experience. And, uh, and I think we need more of that. And we need more of the deafs and the robs in the world to be able to communicate together to resolve issues when there are some. And, and I really have to give kudos to your show for allowing the platform to be able to bring this to a good place. Because right now, I think going forward, uh, it's going to make some great changes in that park. And I think as national parks go, they are, uh, there's something magical about them. And I, for years, I mean, I have gone to national parks for my vacation and there's always something new to explore and if we can get more people with disabilities to be able to do this hey that's a great thing and maybe they won't be maybe somebody with a walking disability will never be able to get into you know up on Grossmore Mountain or into the end of Western Brook Trail on the other side of the pond but Looking at different situations, and as Rob said, they're trying to figure out how to, you know, help the hearing impaired and everything. Maybe a good place to start, too, is with virtual tours. So there's all kinds of things that can happen, and I, I'm willing to have more conversations with Jeff and the staff at the park to be able to um, help make that fully inclusive for everybody, and that's where we are right now. So it, it's been a great experience for, for everybody, I think, a right. really big learning experience. Yeah, well, that's a good thing. That's the right outcome here. You know, mm-hmm. and this is not about Parks Canada or anybody else, but there's businesses and politicians out there who are dealing with different issues regardless of what we're talking about, mobility, accessibility, or a variety of things. If you don't fully understand it, there's nothing quite like lived experience to help guide the conversation, help guide policy, because let's be honest there, there's nobody on the face of the earth knows everything about everything. And so listening to folks who actually know because they've lived it or they've dealt with it and they've figured out solutions in their own business, accessibility and otherwise, let them drive the conversation. That's right. And when we go back to everything that's going on around us today, I see more people with lived experience coming forward, like Keith this morning when he was talking about addictions. And in my prior life, um, I worked in the field of mental health and addictions, uh, as you know, and um, I see so many positive things that can come from people coming forward with that experience. And the people that have the power to make things happen, if they don't have the lived experience, they still can't make things happen. So we have to inform, and that's what this has done you know, for people with disabilities. 100%. Karen, I appreciate the time and the follow-up today. Keep us in the loop. I will. Thanks, Patty. You're welcome, Karen. Take care. All right, bye-bye. Here we go. All right, final break of the morning. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Uh, Line number five. Terry, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. morning. Patty, uh, I'm just calling you into – I was uh, caught the end of a conversation from a previous caller with you on a fisheries matter. I didn't get the first part of your conversation, but the part I did get is that she was bringing up the issue of where her and her husband could not get heist in her area of Newfoundland to catch fish for personal use. Um, and they saw another boat that could get the ice. Um, I, I don't know about in our area, but in our area, if you want ice to go out and catch codfish just to uh, take for personal use or to sell locally, there's no problem to get the ice. You just got to pay for it. And, uh, yeah, but that wasn't I mean, the first part of the conversation that you missed was they have a commercial license and their local processor isn't buying and can't, won't give 
give them any ice either. The boat that she saw steam in from another bay, the processor said they gave that person ice because they said it was for personal use, but they were looking for ice to execute their commercial license. Yes, that's what I'm talking about, too. I mean, I'm talking about commercial fisher. i got a commercial license. Uh, I can get ice to go commercially fish. i just got to buy it because uh, the buyer is not buying it, so... Uh, they're not going to. They won't provide me with ice to go and catch fish and sell it locally, or to fillet it and take it to Cornerbrook or Deer Lake and sell the fillets. Uh, but they'll sell me ice, no problem. And I'm wondering if she explored that option, right? I mean, that other boat that she saw, they might have bought their ice. I don't know. Uh, did, did 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 she know, or did she just assume they were being given free ice? That's what she said. Yeah. Now, how she found that out, I guess she went talking to the processor, which apparently they've done daily because they haven't been able to fish. They've been uh, since the, what, 2nd of July, I think she said, Dave, without any revenue because she had, they, their processor isn't buying and she can't even get any ice. Now, whether or not she's actually uh, asked to buy some, I don't know. She didn't offer that, but she did intimate that the other crowd got their ice because they simply told them it was for uh, personal use. That's it. That's as much as I know. Yeah, that's right. So I, this is why I called in to just uh, add a little bit to there. Like, yes, if I go to my buyer now and I say, can I get a ton of ice uh, to sell my two or 3,000 pound of codfish today locally? They'll say no, because you're not selling that fish to me. But if you want to buy your ton of ice, so it's no problem. We'll, we'll sell you a ton of ice, which, which uh, some fishermen down there are doing. Uh, you know, so I don't know if she explored that option, right? It's not, it's not as cut and dry as... Well, one boat got ice and the other one wouldn't uh, without all the facts being presented. Like maybe one boat agreed to buy their ice and the other gro- boat said, no, I'm not buying it. I want it for free. So uh, that's all I'm saying, right? Oh, fair enough. I don't know if she offered to buy, but she certainly sounded desperate enough that I would imagine they did. Now, I can follow up with Brenda and ask her that very specific question, but I'd be surprised if it was uh, any other way. But I don't know, Terry, to be honest with you. I can't answer it. Yes, and this is why. That's all I wanted to say is like, um, uh, you you can buy ice at least in our area, uh, the sea area. You can buy ice or whatever going price is seventy seventy five dollars a ton. Uh, but now, once the, your buyer starts buying codfish, which we're assuming might be next week, yes, then once they are they start buying your codfish, they'll provide you with ice, and you won't have to pay for it. Well, you're still paying for it, Patty. Nothing's free. That's right. Uh, you know that, that that oyster providing to you costs them money to make, so they're building that into the, what the, the price they're paying you in the for your cod. So it's like in every species, no, nothing is free. No, and I don't expect people uh, think there's anything free. Well, maybe they do. I don't know. I mean, we still hear people tell us that healthcare is free, but there is nothing free. That's just the way things work. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Anyway, that's all I want to say with that. Appreciate the time, Terry. Thank you. You're welcome. Take Bye. care. All right, there you go. Yeah, now, whether or not Brenda offered to buy ice, I don't know. Um, I suppose I should have or I could follow up with Brenda to see if that's the case. But I think the real sticking point there is that we've got a very congested season for the various species that are being fished at the moment. Because I, and I think she's, uh, she quoted 86, 86% of the total allowable catch of snow crab has been landed. That's an encouraging number. I think she used the 31st of July as the number, as the date, as to when that percentage of the tack was landed. 
You know, whether or not we get to 100, I think it's looking more and more likely. If the number she offered is accurate, then it's looking more and more likely that the entirety will get landed, which is a big deal. But it doesn't change much regarding next year. And, you know, people say, well, we're still executing this year's fishery. Why are we talking about next year? Well, because like many things in the fishery, next year happens very quickly. And some of the problems that we hear, not only in that industry, but many industries, they get all the headlines and people are frustrated on all sides and then the the business gets attended to and then next year comes around and we have the exact same racket because it's not new that there's a disparity between the prices offered for whatever species by the association of seafood producers and the ffaw and at this moment in time there's no compromise there's no gray area the price setting panel of three picks one this year on crab they said the quiet part out loud they know it's not the right price now they didn't say what the exact right price should or could be but if that's the case and there's been a commitment to work towards figuring out price to figuring out how and where and who harvesters can sell to will that include the so-called out-of-province buyer I don't know. In world like snow crab this year, the market is the market, and I don't think the end consumer really cares who the buyer was on the wharfs of Newfoundland or Labrador, whether it be Quincy, Royal Greenland, or even some of the smaller players. But if that's going to be the possibility to maximize the value for the raw material, then maybe that'll be part of it. Will there be a consistent move towards the floating target, given the market realities, up or down? It's going to be hard to say that we'll only accept it if the market goes up, but we won't accept it if the market goes down. Because the softening of the market is very likely, uh, or possible, pardon me, any year on any species, especially the so-called luxury item that would be snow crab. I mean, just look at what the prices are of the retail shops, right? I mean, it's absolutely unbelievable. And the big flip this year is it went from a very strong... uh, opportunity to sell your snow crab because people were cooking more at home less travel more money to spend on items like snow crab now it's gone back to the reliance on the white tablecloth and consequently that's much softer than it has been in years past for a variety of reasons so there's been a full 180 in that particular market will it be a move towards a certain percentage of the market value going to one side or the other whether that's straight up 50-50, which seems unlikely, that level of compromise is available. But will that take away the sting from one side or the other about the price? Because if I know that I'm, go- I'm guaranteed this to get this percentage of the market price, regardless, and the other side gets their percentage, and we understand it going in, and we know what it means, and we've agreed upon it, because that's one of the caveats put forward by the province, unless both sides agree to a modernized or a different approach to pricing, and a different approach to how and where and who you sell to. If not, if we don't have an agreement with all sides, then there will be no change, which is certainly less than helpful. All right, looks like pretty good crowds down and around the pond today at the 205th running of the Royal St. John's Regatta. Looks like a little tiny bit of rain. I see some dark clouds hanging over Kenmount Terrace. Hopefully that doesn't knock down the opportunity for the vendors to make their money because for the rowers rowing in the rain is not that big a deal it's all about the pond condition itself right so i think i'm going to try to make my way down after i attend to a little bit of laundry that i came home with that i of course did not deal with last night all right final checking on the twitter or x foolish wherever you see open line you know what to do you can follow us there our email address is openline at vocm.com where you can make suggestions uh suggest topics comment on what you heard or my favorite is when you pick up the phone and join us live on the program which you can indeed do tomorrow when we pick up this conversation on vocm and big land fm's open line on behalf of the producer david williams i'm your host patty daly have yourself a safe fun happy day we'll talk in the morning bye-bye